At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 2, Chapter 2 of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald Book Two, Chapter Two Experiments in Convalescence The Knickerbocker Bar, beamed upon by Maxfield Parrish's jovial, colorful Old King Cole, was well crowded. Amory stopped in the entrance and looked at his wristwatch. He wanted particularly to know the time, for something in his mind that catalogued and classified liked to chip things off cleanly. Later it would satisfy him in a vague way to be able to think, that thing ended at exactly twenty minutes after eight on Thursday, June 10. 1919. This was allowing for the walk from her house, a walk concerning which he had afterward not the faintest recollection. He was in rather grotesque condition. Two days of worry and nervousness, of sleepless nights, of untouched meals, culminating in the emotional crisis and Rosalind's abrupt decision, the strain of it had drugged the foreground of his mind into a merciful coma. As he fumbled clumsily with the olives at the free lunch-table, a man approached and spoke to him, and the olives dropped from his nervous hands. "'Well, Amory?' It was someone he had known at Princeton. He had no idea of the name. "'Hello, old boy,' he heard himself saying. "'Name's Jim Wilson. You've forgotten.' "'Sure, you bet, Jim. I, I remember.' "'Going to reunion?' "'You know.' Simultaneously he realized that he was not going to reunion. "'Get overseas?' Amory nodded, his eyes staring oddly. Stepping back to let someone pass, he knocked the dish of olives to a crash on the floor. "'Too bad,' he muttered. "'Have a drink?' Wilson, ponderously diplomatic, reached over and slapped him on the back. "'You've had plenty, old boy!' Amory eyed him dumbly until Wilson grew embarrassed under the scrutiny. "'Plenty hell,' said Amory finally. "'I haven't had a drink to-day.' Wilson looked incredulous. "'Have a drink or not!' cried Amory rudely. Together they sought the bar. "'Rye high!' "'I'll just take a Bronx.' 
Wilson had another. Amory had several more. They decided to sit down. At ten o'clock Wilson was displaced by Carling, class of fifteen. Amory, his head spinning gorgeously, layer upon layer of soft satisfaction setting over the bruised spots of his spirit, was discoursing volubly on the war. "'It's a mental waste,' he insisted with owl-like wisdom. Two years my life spent intellectual vacuity. Lost the idealism. Got be physical animal. He shook his fist expressively at old King Cole. Got be Prussian bout everything. Women specially. Used to be straight about women college. Now don't give a damn. He expressed his lack of principle by sweeping a seltzer bottle with a broad gesture to noisy extinction on the floor, but this did not interrupt his speech. "'Seek pleasure where find it for tomorrow, die. That's philosophy for me, now on.' Carling yawned, but Amory, waxing brilliant, continued. "'Is wonder about things. People satisfied compromise. Fifty-fifty attitude on life. Now don't wonder, don't wonder. He became so emphatic in impressing on Carling the fact that he didn't wonder that he lost the thread of his discourse, and concluded by announcing to the bar at large that he was a physical animal. What are you celebrating, Amory? Amory leaned forward confidentially. Celebrating blowing my life. Great moment blow my life. Can't tell you about it. He heard Carling addressing a remark to the bartender. Give him a bromo seltzer. Amory shook his head indignantly. None of that stuff. But listen, Amory, you're making yourself sick. You're white as a ghost. Amory considered the question. He tried to look at himself in the mirror, but even by squinting up one eye could only see as far as the row of bottles behind the bar. Like something solid. We go get some... some salad. He settled his coat with an attempt at nonchalance, but letting go of the bar was too much for him, and he slumped against a chair. We'll go over to Shenley's, suggested Carling, offering an elbow. With this assistance Amory managed to get his legs in motion enough to propel him across 42nd Street. Shanley's was very dim. He was conscious that he was talking in a loud voice, very succinctly and convincingly, he thought, about a desire to crush people under his heel. He consumed three club sandwiches, devouring each as though it were no larger than a chocolate drop. Then Rosalind began popping into his mind again and he found his lips forming her name over and over. Next he was sleepy, and he had a hazy, listless sense of people in dress-suits, probably waiters, gathering around the table. He was in a room, and Carling was saying something about a knot in his shoelace. Nimmine. Nimmine, he managed to articulate drowsily. Sleep in him still alcoholic. He awoke laughing, and his eyes lazily roamed his surroundings, evidently a bedroom and bath in a good hotel. His head was whirring, and picture after picture was forming and blurring and melting before his eyes, 
but beyond the desire to laugh he had no entirely conscious reaction. He reached for the phone beside his bed. "'Hello. What hotel is this?' "'Knickerbocker. All right. Send up two rye highballs.' He lay for a moment and wondered idly whether they'd send up a bottle or just two of those little glass containers. Then, with an effort, he struggled out of bed and ambled into the bathroom. When he emerged, rubbing himself lazily with a towel, he found the barboy with the drinks, and he had a sudden desire to kid him. On reflection, he decided that this would be undignified, so he waved him away. As the new alcohol tumbled into his stomach and warmed him, the isolated pictures began slowly to form a cinema reel of the day before. Again he saw Rosalind curling, weeping among the pillows. Again he felt her tears against his cheek. Her words began ringing in his ears, "'Don't ever forget me, Amory, don't ever forget me!' "'Hell!' he faltered aloud, and then he choked and collapsed on the bed in a shaken spasm of grief. After a minute he opened his eyes and regarded the ceiling. "'Damned fool!' he exclaimed in disgust, and with a voluminous sigh rose and approached the bottle. After another glass he gave way loosely to the luxury of tears. Purposely he called up into his mind little incidents of the vanished spring, phrased to himself emotions that would make him react even more strongly to sorrow. "'We were so happy,' he intoned dramatically, "'so very happy!' Then he gave way again, and knelt beside the bed, his head half-buried in the pillow. "'My own girl, my own—oh!' He clinched his teeth so that the tears streamed in a flood from his eyes. "'Oh, my baby girl, all I had—' all I wanted. Oh, my girl, come back, come back. I need you, need you. We're so pitiful. Just misery we brought each other. She'll be shut away from me. I can't see her. I can't be her friend. It's got to be that way. It's got to be. And then again, We've been so happy, so very happy." He rose to his feet and threw himself on the bed in an ecstasy of sentiment, and then lay exhausted while he realized slowly that he had been very drunk the night before, and that his head was spinning again wildly. He laughed, rose, and crossed again to Lethe. At noon he ran into a crowd in the Biltmore bar, and the riot began again. He had a vague recollection afterward of discussing French poetry with a British officer, who was introduced to him as Captain Corn of His Majesty's Foot, and he remembered attempting to recite Claire de Lune at luncheon. Then he slept in a big soft chair until almost five o'clock, when another crowd found and woke him. There followed an alcoholic dressing of several temperaments for the ordeal of dinner. They selected theatre tickets at Tyson's for a play that had a four-drink programme, a play with two monotonous voices, with turbid, gloomy scenes, and lighting effects that were hard to follow when his eyes behaved so amazingly. 
he imagined afterward it must have been the jest. Then the coconut grove, where Amory slept again on the little balcony outside. Out in Shanley's, Yonkers, he became almost logical, and by a careful control of the number of highballs he drank, grew quite lucid and garrulous. He found that the party consisted of five men, two of whom he knew slightly. He became righteous about paying his share of the expense, and insisted in a loud voice on arranging everything then and there to the amusement of the tables around him. Someone mentioned that a famous cabaret star was at the next table, so Amory rose and approached gallantly, introduced himself. This involved him in an argument, first with her escort and then with the head-waiter. Amory's attitude being a lofty and exaggerated courtesy, he consented, after being confronted with irrefutable logic, to being led back to his own table. "'Decided to commit suicide,' he announced suddenly. "'When? Next year?' "'Now. Tomorrow morning. Going to take a room at the Commodore, get into a hot bath, and open a vein.' He's getting morbid. You need another rye, old boy. We'll all talk it over tomorrow. But Amory was not to be dissuaded, from argument at least. Did you ever get that way? he demanded confidentially for Tachio. Sure. Often? My chronic state. This provoked discussion. One man said that he got so depressed sometimes that he seriously considered it. Another agreed that there was nothing to live for. Captain Korn, who had somehow rejoined the party, said that in his opinion it was when one's health was bad that one felt that way most. Amory's suggestion was that they should each order a Bronx, mix broken glass in it, and drink it off. To his relief no one applauded the idea, so having finished his highball, he balanced his chin in his hand and his elbow on the table. A most delicate, scarcely noticeable sleeping position, he assured himself, and went into a deep stupor. He was awakened by a woman clinging to him, a pretty woman, with brown, disarranged hair and dark blue eyes. "'Take me home!' she cried. "'Hello!' said Amory, blinking. "'I like you,' she announced tenderly. I like you, too." He noticed that there was a noisy man in the background, and that one of his party was arguing with him. "'Fella I was with's a damn fool,' confided the blue-eyed woman. "'I hate him. I want to go home with you.' "'You drunk?' queried Amory, with intense wisdom. She nodded coyly. "'Go home with him,' he advised gravely. "'He brought you.' At this point the noisy man in the background broke away from his detainers and approached. "'Say,' he said fiercely, "'I brought this girl out here, and you're butting in.' Amory regarded him coldly, while the girl clung to him closer. "'You let go that girl!' cried the noisy man. Amory tried to make his eyes threatening. "'You go to hell!' he directed finally, and turned his attention to the girl. "'Love first sight,' he suggested. "'I love you,' she breathed and nestled close to him. She did have beautiful eyes. 
Someone leaned over and spoke in Amory's ear. "'That's just Margaret Diamond. She's drunk, and this fellow here brought her. Better let her go.' "'Let him take care of her, then,' shouted Amory furiously. "'I'm no W.Y.C.A. worker, am I? Am I?' "'Let her go.' "'It's her hanging on, damn it. Let her hang.' The crowd around the table thickened. For an instant a brawl threatened, but a sleek waiter bent back Margaret Diamond's fingers until she released her hold on Amory, whereupon she slapped the waiter furiously in the face and flung her arms about her raging original escort. "'Oh, Lord!' cried Amory. "'Let's go.' "'Come on, the taxis are getting scarce.' "'Check, waiter.' Come on, Amory, your romance is over. Amory laughed. You don't know how true you spoke. No idea. That's the whole trouble. Amory on the Labor Question Two mornings later he knocked at the President's door at Bascom and Barlow's advertising agency. Come in. Amory entered unsteadily. "'Morning, Mr. Barlow.' Mr. Barlow brought his glasses to the inspection and set his mouth slightly ajar that he might better listen. "'Well, Mr. Blaine, we haven't seen you for several days.' "'No,' said Amory. "'I'm quitting.' "'Well, well, this is—' "'I don't like it here.' "'I'm sorry. I thought our relations had been quite, uh, pleasant.' You seem to be a hard worker. A little inclined, perhaps, to write fancy copy. I just got tired of it, interrupted Amory rudely. It didn't matter a damn to me whether Harebell's flour was any better than anyone else's. In fact, I never ate any of it. So I got tired of telling people about it. Oh, I know I've been drinking. Mr. Barlow's face steeled by several ingots of expression. You asked for a position. Amory waved him to silence. And I think I was rottenly underpaid. Thirty-five dollars a week, less than a good carpenter. You had just started. You'd never worked before, said Mr. Barlow coolly. But it took about ten thousand dollars to educate me where I could write your darn stuff for you. Anyway, as far as length of service goes, You've got stenographers here you've paid fifteen a week for five years. I'm not going to argue with you, sir, said Mr. Barlow, rising. Neither am I. I just wanted to tell you I'm quitting. They stood for a moment looking at each other impassively, and then Amory turned and left the office. A LITTLE LULL Four days after that he returned at last to the apartment. Tom was engaged in a book review for the New Democracy, on the staff of which he was employed. They regarded each other for a moment in silence. "'Well?' "'Well?' "'Good Lord, Amory! Where'd you get the black eye and the jaw?' Amory laughed. "'That's a mere nothing.' He peeled off his coat and bared his shoulders. Look here! Tom emitted a low whistle. What hit you? Amory laughed again. Oh, 
A lot of people. I got beaten up. Fact. He slowly replaced his shirt. It was bound to come sooner or later, and I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Who was it? Well, there were some waiters, and a couple of sailors, and a few straight pedestrians, I guess. It's the strangest feeling. You ought to get beaten up just for the experience of it. You fall down after a while, and everybody sort of slashes in at you before you hit the ground. Then they kick you. Tom lighted a cigarette. I spent a day chasing you all over town, Emery, but you always kept a little ahead of me. I'd say you've been on some party. Emery tumbled into a chair and asked for a cigarette. You sober now? asked Tom, quizzically. Pretty sober. Why? Well, Alec has left. His family had been after him to go home and live, so he— A spasm of pain shook Emery. Too bad. Yes, it is too bad. We'll have to get someone else if we're going to stay here. The rent's going up. Sure. Get anybody. I'll leave it to you, Tom. Amory walked into his bedroom. The first thing that met his glance was a photograph of Rosalind that he had intended to have framed, propped up against a mirror on his dresser. He looked at it unmoved. After the vivid mental pictures of her that were his portion at present, the portrait was curiously unreal. He went back into the study. Got a cardboard box? No answered Tom, puzzled. Why should I have? Oh, yes, there there may be one in Alec's room. Eventually Amory found what he was looking for, and, returning to his dresser, opened a drawer full of letters, notes, part of a chain, two little handkerchiefs, and some snapshots. As he transferred them carefully to the box, his mind wandered to some place in a book where the hero, after preserving for a year a cake of his lost love's soap, finally washed his hands with it. He laughed, and began to hum, After you've gone. Ceased abruptly. The string broke twice, and then he managed to secure it, dropped the package into the bottom of his trunk, and having slammed the lid, returned to the study. Going out? Tom's voice held an undertone of anxiety. Aha. Uh -huh. Where? Couldn't say, old Keed. Let's have dinner together. Sorry, I told Suki Brett I'd eat with him. Oh. Bye-bye. Amory crossed the street and had a highball, then he walked to Washington Square and found a top seat on a bus. He disembarked at 43rd Street and strolled to the Biltmore Bar. Hi, Amory. What do you have? Yo-ho, waiter. Temperature normal. The advent of prohibition with the thirsty first put a sudden stop to the submerging of Amory's sorrows, and when he awoke one morning to find that the old bar-to-bar -bar days were over, he had neither remorse for the past three weeks nor regret that their repetition was impossible. He had taken the most violent, if the weakest, method to shield himself from the stabs of memory and while it was not a course he would have prescribed for others, he found in the end that it had done its business. He was over the first flush of pain. 
don't misunderstand amory had loved rosalind as he would never love another living person she had taken the first flush of his youth and brought from his unplumbed depths tenderness that had surprised him gentleness and unselfishness that he had never given to another creature he had later love affairs but of a different sort in those he went back to that perhaps more typical frame of mind in which the girl became the mirror of a mood in him rosalind had drawn out what was more than passionate admiration he had a deep undying affection for rosalind but there had been near the end so much dramatic tragedy culminating in the arabesque nightmare of his three weeks spree that he was emotionally worn out the people and surroundings that he remembered as being cool or delicately artificial seemed to promise him a refuge he wrote a cynical story which featured his father's funeral and dispatched it to a magazine receiving in return a check for sixty dollars and a request for more of the same tone this tickled his vanity but inspired him to no further effort he read enormously he was puzzled and depressed by a portrait of the artist as a young man intensely interested by joan and peter and the undying fire and rather surprised by his discovery through a critic named mencken of several excellent american novels vandover and the brute the damnation of theron ware and jenny gerhardt mackenzie chesterton galsworthy bennett had sunk in his appreciation from sagacious life-saturated geniuses to merely diverting contemporaries shaw's aloof clarity and brilliant consistency and the gloriously intoxicated efforts of h g wells to fit the key of romantic symmetry into the elusive lock of truth alone won his rapt attention he wanted to see monseigneur darcy to whom he had written when he had landed but he had not heard from him besides he knew that a visit to monseigneur would entail the story of rosalind and the thought of repeating it left him cold with horror in his search for cool people he remembered mrs lawrence a very intelligent very dignified lady a convert to the church and a great devotee of monseigneur's he called her on the phone one day yes she remembered him perfectly no monseigneur wasn't in town was in boston she thought he promised to come to dinner when he returned couldn't amory take luncheon with her i thought i'd better catch up mrs lawrence he said rather ambiguously when he arrived monseigneur was here just last week said mrs lawrence regretfully he was very anxious to see you but he'd left your address at home did he think i'd plunged into bolshevism asked amory interested oh he's having a frightful time why about the irish republic he thinks it lacks dignity so he went to boston when the irish president arrived and he was greatly distressed because the receiving committee when they rode in an automobile would put their arms around the president i don't blame him well what impressed you more than anything while you were in the army you look a great deal older that's from another more disastrous battle 
he answered, smiling in spite of himself. But the army... let me see. Well, I discovered that physical courage depends to a great extent on the physical shape a man is in. I found that I was as brave as the next man. It used to worry me before. What else? Well, the idea that men can stand anything if they get used to it, and the fact that I got a high mark in the psychological examination. Mrs. Lawrence laughed. Amory was finding it a great relief to be in this cool house on Riverside Drive, away from more condensed New York and the sense of people expelling great quantities of breath into a little space. Mrs. Lawrence reminded him vaguely of Beatrice, not in temperament but in her perfect grace and dignity. The house, its furnishings, the manner in which dinner was served, were in immense contrast to what he had met in the great places on Long Island, where the servants were so obtrusive that they had positively to be bumped out of the way, or even in the houses of more conservative Union Club families. He wondered if this air of symmetrical restraint, this grace, which he felt was continental, was distilled through Mrs. Lawrence's New England ancestry, or acquired in long residence in Italy and Spain. Two glasses of Sauternes at luncheon loosened his tongue, and he talked with what he felt was something of his old charm, of religion and literature, and the menacing phenomena of the social order. Mrs. Lawrence was ostensibly pleased with him, and her interest was especially in his mind. He wanted people to like his mind again. After a while it might be such a nice place in which to live. Monsignor Darcy still thinks that you're his reincarnation, that your faith will eventually clarify. Perhaps, he assented. I'm rather pagan at present. It's just that religion doesn't seem to have the slightest bearing on life at my age. When he left her house he walked down Riverside Drive with a feeling of satisfaction. It was amusing to discuss again such subjects as this young poet, Stephen Vincent Benet, or the Irish Republic. Between the rancid accusations of Edward Carson and Justice Cohollan, he had completely tired of the Irish question, yet there had been a time when his own Celtic traits were pillars of his personal philosophy. There seemed suddenly to be much left in life. If only this revival of old interest did not mean that he was backing away from it again, backing away from life itself. End of this part of this chapter. Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Two of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit. LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Two. Restlessness. I'm tray old and tray bored, Tom, said Amory one day, stretching himself at ease in the comfortable window seat. He always felt most natural in a recumbent position. 
You used to be entertaining before you started to write, he continued. Now you save any idea that you think would do to print. Existence had settled back to an ambitionless normality. They had decided that with economy they could still afford the apartment, which Tom, with the domesticity of an elderly cat, had grown fond of. The old English hunting prints on the wall were Tom's, and the large tapestry by courtesy, a relic of decadent days in college, and the great profusion of orphaned candlesticks, and the carved Louis the Fifteenth chair in which no one could sit more than a minute without acute spinal disorders. Tom claimed that this was because one was sitting in the lap of Montespan's wrath. At any rate, it was Tom's furniture that decided them to stay. They went out very little, to an occasional play, or to dinner at the Ritz or the Princeton Club. With prohibition the great rendezvous had received their death-wounds. No longer could one wander to the Biltmore Bar at twelve or five, and see congenial spirits, and both Tom and Amory had outgrown the passion for dancing with Midwestern or New Jersey Debbies at the Club de Vin, surnamed the Club de Kink, or the Plaza Rose Room, because even that required several cocktails to come down to the intellectual level of the women present as Amory had once put it to a horrified matron. Amory had lately received several alarming letters from Mr. Barton. The Lake Geneva house was too large to be easily rented. The best rent obtainable at present would serve this year to little more than pay for the taxes and necessary improvements. In fact, the lawyer suggested that the whole property was simply a white elephant on Amory's hands. Nevertheless, even though it might not yield a cent for the next three years, Amory decided with a vague sentimentality that for the present, at any rate, he would not sell the house. This particular day on which he announced his ennui to Tom had been quite typical. He had risen at noon, lunched with Mrs. Lawrence, and then ridden abstractedly homeward atop one of his beloved buses. "'Why shouldn't you be bored?' yawned Tom. Isn't that the conventional frame of mind for the young man of your age and condition? Yes, said Amory speculatively. But I'm more than bored. I'm restless. Love and war did for you. Well, Amory considered, I'm not sure that the war itself had any great effect on either you or me, but it certainly ruined the old backgrounds, sort of killed individualism out of our generation. Tom looked up in surprise. "'Yes, it did,' insisted Amory. "'I'm not sure it didn't kill it out of the whole world. Oh, Lord, what a pleasure it used to be to dream I might be a really great dictator, or writer, or religious, or political leader. And now even a Leonardo da Vinci or Lorenzo de' Medici couldn't be a real old-fashioned bolt in the world. Life is too huge and complex.' The world is so overgrown that it can't lift its own fingers, and I was planning to be such an important finger." "'I don't agree with you,' Tom interrupted. "'There never were men placed in such egotistic positions since—oh, since the French Revolution.' Amory disagreed violently. "'You're mistaking this period when every nut is an individualist for a period of individualism. Wilson has only been powerful when he has represented He's had to compromise over and over again. Just as soon as Trotsky and Lenin take a definite, consistent stand, 
They'll become merely two-minute figures, like Kerensky. Even Foch hasn't half the significance of Stonewall Jackson. War used to be the most individualistic pursuit of man, and yet the popular heroes of the war had neither authority nor responsibility. Guynamer and Sergeant York! How could a schoolboy make a hero of Pershing? A big man has no time really to do anything but just sit and be big. Then you don't think there will be any more permanent world heroes? Yes, in history, not in life. Carlyle would have difficulty getting material for a new chapter on The Hero as a Big Man. Go on, I'm a good listener today. People try so hard to believe in leaders now, pitifully hard. But we no sooner get a popular reformer, or politician, or soldier, or writer, or philosopher, a Roosevelt, a Tolstoy, a Wood, a Shaw, a Nietzsche, than the cross-currents of criticism wash him away. My Lord, no man can stand prominence these days. It's the surest path to obscurity. People get sick of hearing the same name over and over. Then you blame it on the press? Absolutely. Look at you. You're on the new democracy, considered the most brilliant weekly in the country, read by the men who do things and all that. What's your business? Why, to be as clever, as interesting, and as brilliantly cynical as possible about every man, doctrine, book, or policy that is assigned you to deal with. The more strong lights, the more spiritual scandal you can throw on the matter, the more money they pay you, the more the people buy the issue. You, Tom Donvilliers, a blighted Shelley, changing, shifting, clever, unscrupulous, represent the critical consciousness of the race. Oh, don't protest, I know the stuff. I used to write book reviews in college. I considered it rare sport to refer to the latest honest, conscientious effort to propound a theory or a remedy as a welcome addition to our light summer reading. Come on, now, admit it. Tom laughed, and Amory continued triumphantly. We want to believe. Young students try to believe in older authors. Constituents try to believe in their congressmen. Countries try to believe in their statesmen. But they can't. Too many voices, too much scattered, illogical, ill-considered criticism. It's worse in the case of newspapers. Any rich, unprogressive old party with that particularly grasping, acquisitive form of mentality known as financial genius can own a paper that is the intellectual meat and drink of thousands of tired, hurried men, men too involved in the business of modern living to swallow anything but a pre-digested food. For two cents, the voter buys his politics, prejudices, and philosophy. A year later there is a new political ring, or a change in the paper's ownership. Consequence, more confusion, more contradiction, a sudden inrush of new ideas, their tempering, their distillation, their reaction against them. He paused only to get his breath. And that is why I have sworn not to put pen to paper until my ideas either clarify or depart entirely. I have quite enough sins on my soul without putting dangerous, shallow epigrams into people's heads. I might cause a poor, inoffensive capitalist to have a vulgar liaison with a bomb, or get some innocent little Bolshevik tangled up with a machine-gun bullet. Tom was growing restless under this lampooning of his connection with the new democracy. 
What's all this got to do with your being bored? Amory considered that it had much to do with it. How'll I fit in? he demanded. What am I for? To propagate the race? According to the American novels, we are led to believe that the healthy American boy, from nineteen to twenty-five, is an entirely sexless animal. As a matter of fact, the healthier he is, the less that's true. The only alternative to letting it get you is some violent interest. Well, the war is over, and I believe too much in the responsibilities of authorship to write just now. And business, well, business speaks for itself. It has no connection with anything in the world that I've ever been interested in, except a slim utilitarian connection with economics. What I'd see of it, lost in a clerkship, for the next and best ten years of my life would have the intellectual content of an industrial movie. Try fiction, suggested Tom. Trouble is, I get distracted when I start to write stories, get afraid of doing it instead of living get thinking maybe life is waiting for me in the Japanese gardens at the Ritz, or at Atlantic City, or on the Lower East Side. Anyway, he continued, I haven't the vital urge. I wanted to be a regular human being, but the girl couldn't see it that way. You'll find another. God! Banish the thought. Why don't you tell me that if the girl had been worth having, she'd have waited for you? No, sir, the girl really worth having won't wait for anybody. If I thought there'd be another, I'd lose my remaining faith in human nature. Maybe I'll play. But Rosalind wasn't the only girl in the wide world that could have held me. Well, yawned Tom, I played confidant a good hour by the clock. Still, I'm glad to see you're beginning to have violent views again on something. I am, agreed Amory reluctantly. Yet when I see a happy family it makes me sick at my stomach. Happy families try to make people feel that way, said Tom cynically. Tom the Censor There were days when Amory listened. These were when Tom, wreathed in smoke, indulged in the slaughter of American literature. Words failed him. Fifty thousand dollars a year!' he would cry. "'My God, look at them! Look at them! Edna Ferber, Gouverneur Morris, Fanny Hurst, Mary Roberts Reinhardt, not producing among them one story or novel that will last ten years. This man Cobb, I don't think he's either clever or amusing, and what's more, I don't think very many people do, except the editors. He's just groggy with advertising, and, oh, Harold Bell Wright, uh, oh, Zane Gray. They try. No, they don't even try. Some of them can write, but they won't sit down and do one honest novel. Most of them can't write, I'll admit. I believe Rupert Hughes tries to give a real comprehensive picture of American life, but his style and perspective are barbarous. Ernest Poole and Dorothy Canfield try, but they're hindered by their absolute lack of any sense of humor. But at least they crowd their work instead of spreading it thin. 
Every author ought to write every book as if he were going to be beheaded the day he finished it. Is that double entente? Don't slow me up. Now there's a few of them that seem to have some cultural background, some intelligence, and a good deal of literary felicity, but they just simply won't write honestly. They'd all claim there was no public for a good stuff. Then why the devil is it that Wells, Conrad, Galsworthy, Shaw, Bennett, and the rest depend on America for over half their sales? How does little Tommy like the poets? Tom was overcome. He dropped his arms until they swung loosely beside the chair and emitted faint grunts. I'm writing a satire on em now, calling it Boston Bards and Hearst Reviewers. Let's hear it, said Amory eagerly. I've only got the last few lines done. <laughs> That's very modern. Let's hear em if they're funny. Tom produced a folded paper from his pocket and read aloud, pausing at intervals so that Amory could see that it was free verse. So, Walter Ehrensberg, Alfred Kramborg, Carl Sandberg, Louis Untermeyer, Eunice Tychens, Clara Schanefelt, James Oppenheim, Maxwell Bodenheim, Richard Glanser, Charmel Iris, Conrad Aiken. I place your names here so that you may live if only as names, sinuous, mauve-colored names, in the juvenilia of my collected editions. Amory roared. <laughs> you win the iron pansy. I'll buy you a meal on the arrogance of the last two lines. Amory did not entirely agree with Tom's sweeping damnation of American novelists and poets. He enjoyed both Vachel Lindsay and Booth Tarkington, and admired the conscientious, if slender, artistry of Edgar Lee Masters. What I hate is this idiotic drivel about, I am God, I am man, I ride the winds, I look through the smoke, I am the life-sense. It's ghastly. And I wish American novelists would give up trying to make business romantically interesting. Nobody wants to read about it, unless it's crooked business. If it was an entertaining subject, they'd buy the life of James J. Hill, and not one of these long office tragedies that harp along on the significance of smoke. And gloom, said Tom. That's another favorite, though I'll admit the Russians have the monopoly. Our specialty is stories about little girls who break their spines and get adopted by grouchy old men because they smile so much. You'd think we were a race of cheerful cripples, and that the common end of the Russian peasant was suicide. Six o'clock, said Amory, glancing at his wristwatch. I'll buy you a great big dinner on the strength of the juvenilia of your collected editions. Looking Backward July swelled out with a last hot week, and Amory in another surge of unrest realized that it was just five months since he and Rosalind had met. Yet it was already hard for him to visualize the heart-whole boy who had stepped off the transport, passionately desiring the adventure of life. One night while the heat, overpowering and enervating, poured into the windows of his room, he struggled for several hours in a vague effort to immortalize the poignancy of that time. 
the February streets, wind-washed by night, blow full of strange half-intermittent damps, bearing on wasted walks and shining sight, wet snow plashed into gleams under the lamps, like golden oil from some divine machine, in an hour of thaw and stars. Strange damps, full of the eyes of many men, crowded with life borne in upon a lull. Oh, I was young, for I could turn again to you, most finite and most beautiful, and taste the stuff of half-remembered dreams, sweet and new, on your mouth. There was a tanging in the midnight air. Silence was dead and sound not yet awoken. Life cracked like ice. One brilliant note, and there, radiant and pale, you stood, and spring had broken. The icicles were short upon the roofs, and the changeling city swooned. Our thoughts were frosty mist along the eaves. Our two ghosts kissed high on the long mazed wires. Eerie half-laughter echoes here, and leaves only a fatuous sigh for young desires. Regret has followed after things she loved, leaving the great husk. Another Ending In mid-August came a letter from Monsignor Darcy, who had evidently just stumbled on his address. "'My dear boy, your last letter was quite enough to make me worry about you. It was not a bit like yourself. Reading between the lines, I should imagine that your engagement to this girl is making you rather unhappy, and I see you have lost all the feeling of romance that you had before the war. You make a great mistake if you think you can be a romantic without religion. Sometimes I think that with both of us the secret of success, when we find it, is the mystical element in us. Something flows into us that enlarges our personalities, and when it ebbs out, our personalities shrink. I should call your last two letters rather shriveled. Beware of losing yourself in the personality of another being, man or woman. His Eminence Cardinal O'Neill and the Bishop of Boston are staying with me at present, so it is hard for me to get a moment to write. But I wish you would come up here later if only for a weekend. I go to Washington this week. What I shall do in the future is hanging in the balance, absolutely between ourselves. I should not be surprised to see the red hat of a cardinal descend upon my unworthy head within the next eight months. In any event, I should like to have a house in New York or Washington where you could drop in for weekends. Amory, I'm very glad we're both alive. This war could easily have been the end of a brilliant family. But in regard to matrimony, you are now at the most dangerous period of your life. You might marry in haste and repent at leisure, but I think you won't. From what you write me about the present calamitous state of your finances, what you want is naturally impossible. However, if I judge you by the means I usually choose, I should say that there will be something of an emotional crisis within the next year. Do write me. I feel annoyingly out of date on you. With greatest affection, Thayer Darcy. Within a week after the receipt of this letter, their little household fell precipitously to pieces. The immediate cause was the serious and probably chronic illness of Tom's mother. 
So they stored the furniture, gave instructions to sublet, and shook hands gloomily in the Pennsylvania station. Amory and Tom seemed always to be saying good-bye. Feeling very much alone, Amory yielded to an impulse, and set off southward, intending to join Monsignor and Washington. They missed connections by two hours, and, deciding to spend a few days with an ancient, remembered uncle, Amory journeyed up through the luxuriant fields of Maryland into Ramilly County. But instead of two days, his stay lasted from mid-August nearly through September, for in Maryland he met Eleanor. End of chapter. Book Two, Chapter Three of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise, Book Two, Chapter Three, Young Irony. For years afterward, when Amory thought of Eleanor, he seemed still to hear the wind sobbing around him, and sending little chills into the places beside his heart. The night when they rode up the slope and watched the cold moon float through the clouds, he lost a further part of him that nothing could restore, and when he lost it, he lost also the power of regretting it. Eleanor was, say, the last time that evil crept close to Amory under the mask of beauty, the last weird mystery that held him with wild fascination and pounded his soul to flakes. With her his imagination ran riot and that is why they rode to the highest hill and watched an evil moon ride high, for they knew then that they could see the devil in each other. But Eleanor, did Amory dream her? Afterward their ghosts played, yet both of them hoped from their souls never to meet. Was it the infinite sadness of her eyes that drew him, or the mirror of himself that he found in the gorgeous clarity of her mind? She will have no other adventure like Amory, and if she reads this she will say, And Amory will have no other adventure like me. Nor will she sigh any more than he would sigh. Eleanor tried to put it on paper once. The fading things we only know we'll have forgotten. Put away. Desires that melted with the snow, and dreams begotten. This to-day. The sudden dawns we laughed to greet, that all could see, that none could share, will be but dawns, and if we meet, we shall not care. Dear, not one tear will rise for this, a little while hence. No regret will stir for a remembered kiss, not even silence. When we've met, we'll give old ghosts a waste to roam, or stir the surface of the sea. If grey shapes drift beneath the foam, we shall not see. They quarrelled dangerously because Amory maintained that C S E A and C S E E couldn't possibly be used as a rhyme, and then Eleanor had part of another verse that she couldn't find a beginning for. But wisdom passes, 
still the years will feed us wisdom age will go back to the old for all our tears we shall not know eleanor hated maryland passionately she belonged to the oldest of the old families of ramilly county and lived in a big gloomy house with her grandfather she had been born and brought up in france ah, i see i am starting wrong let me begin again amory was bored as he usually was in the country he used to go for far walks by himself and wander along reciting ukulume to the cornfields and congratulating poe for drinking himself to death in that atmosphere of smiling complacency one afternoon he had strolled for several miles along a road that was new to him and then through a wood on bad advice from a colored woman losing himself entirely a passing storm decided to break out and to his great impatience the sky grew black as pitch and the rain began to splatter down through the trees become suddenly furtive and ghostly thunder rolled with menacing crashes up the valley and scattered through the woods in intermittent batteries he stumbled blindly on hunting for a way out and finally through webs of twisted branches caught sight of a rift in the trees where the unbroken lightning showed open country he rushed to the edge of the woods and then hesitated whether or not to cross the fields and try to reach the shelter of the little house marked by a light far down the valley it was only half-past five but he could see scarcely ten steps before him except when the lightning made everything vivid and grotesque for great sweeps around suddenly a strange sound fell on his ears it was a song in a low husky voice a girl's voice and whoever was singing was very close to him a year before he might have laughed or trembled but in his restless mood he only stood and listened while the words sank into his consciousness les sanglots longs des violons de l'automne blessent mon coeur d'une langueur monotone the lightning split the sky but the song went on without a quaver the girl was evidently in the field and the voice seemed to come vaguely from a haystack about twenty feet in front of him then it ceased ceased and began again in a weird chant that soared and hung and fell and blended with the raid tout suffocant et blême quand son heure je me souviens des jours anciens et je pleure who the devil is there in ramilly county muttered amory aloud who would deliver verlaine in an extemporaneous tune to a soaking haystack somebody's there cried the voice unalarmed who are you manfred st christopher or queen victoria i'm don juan amory shouted on impulse raising his voice above the noise of the rain and the wind a delighted shriek came from the haystack i know who you are you're the blonde boy that likes ulalumi i recognize your voice how do i get up he cried from the foot of the haystack whither he had arrived dripping wet a head appeared over the edge it was so dark that amory could just make out a patch of damp hair and two eyes that gleamed like a cat's run back came the voice and jump and i'll catch your hand no not there on the other side 
He followed directions, and as he sprawled up the side, knee-deep in hay, a small white hand reached out, gripped his, and helped him onto the top. "'Here you are, one," cried she of the damp hair. "'Do you mind if I drop the dawn?' "'You've got a thumb like mine!' he exclaimed. "'And you're holding my hand, which is dangerous without seeing my face.' He dropped it quickly. As if in answer to his prayers came a flash of lightning, and he looked eagerly at her who stood beside him on the soggy haystack, ten feet above the ground. But she had covered her face, and he saw nothing but a slender figure, dark, damp-bobbed hair, and the small white hands with the thumbs that bent back like his. "'Sit down,' she suggested politely, as the dark closed in on them. If you sit opposite me in this hollow, you can have half of the raincoat, which I was using as a waterproof tent until you so rudely interrupted me." "'I was asked,' Amory said joyfully. "'You asked me. You know you did.' "'Don Juan always manages that,' she said, laughing. "'But I shan't call you that any more, because you've got reddish hair. Instead, you can recite Ulalume, and I'll be Psyche, your soul.' Amory flushed, happily invisible under the curtain of wind and rain. They were sitting opposite each other in a slight hollow in the hay, with the raincoat spread over most of them, and the rain doing for the rest. Amory was trying desperately to see Psyche, but the lightning refused to flash again, and he waited impatiently. Good Lord! Supposing she wasn't beautiful! Supposing she was forty and pedantic! Heavens! Suppose only suppose she was mad. But he knew the last was unworthy. Here had Providence sent a girl to amuse him just as it sent Benevuto Cellini men to murder, and he was wondering if she was mad just because she exactly filled his mood. "'I'm not,' she said. "'Not what?' "'Not mad. I didn't think you were mad when I first saw you so it isn't fair that you should think so of me. How on earth?" As long as they knew each other, Eleanor and Amory could be on a subject, and stop talking with a definite thought of it in their heads, yet ten minutes later speak aloud and find that their minds had followed the same channels, and led them each to a parallel idea, an idea that others would have found absolutely unconnected with the first. "'Tell me,' he demanded, leaning forward eagerly, "'how do you know about Ulalume? How did you know the colour of my hair? What's your name? What are you doing here? Tell me all at once!' Suddenly the lightning flashed in with a leap of overreaching light, and he saw Eleanor, and looked for the first time into those eyes of hers. Oh, she was magnificent! Pale skin! the colour of marble in starlight, slender brows, and eyes that glittered green as emeralds in the blinding glare. She was a witch, of perhaps nineteen, he judged, alert and dreamy, and with the tell-tale white line over her upper lip that was a weakness and a delight. He sank back with a gasp against the wall of hay. "'Now you've seen me,' she said calmly, "'and I suppose you're about to say, that my green eyes are burning into your brain. "'What colour is your hair?' he asked intently. 
It's bobbed, isn't it? Yes, it's bobbed. I don't know what color it is, she answered, musing. So many men have asked me. It's medium, I suppose. No one ever looks long at my hair. I've got beautiful eyes, though, haven't I? I don't care what you say. I have beautiful eyes. Answer my question, Madeline. Don't remember them all. Besides, my name isn't Madeline, it's Eleanor. I might have guessed it. You look like Eleanor. You have that Eleanor look. You know what I mean. There was a silence as they listened to the rain. It's going down my neck, fellow lunatic, she offered finally. Answer my questions. Well, name of savage, Eleanor. Live in big old house, mile down road. Nearest living relation to be notified. Grandfather, Ramily Savage. Height, five feet four inches. Number on watch case, 3077W. Nose, delicate aquiline. Temperament, uncanny. And me, Amory interrupted, where did you see me? Oh, you're one of those men she answered haughtily. Must lug old self into conversation. Well, my boy, I was behind a hedge, sunning myself one day last week, and along comes a man saying in a pleasant, conceited way of talking, And now where the night was senescent, says he, and the star-dials pointed to morn, at the end of the path a liquescent, says he, and nebulous luster was born. So I poked my eyes up over the hedge, but you had started to run, for some unknown reason, and so I saw but the back of your beautiful head. Oh, says I, there's a man for whom many of us might sigh. And I continued in my best Irish. All right, Amory interrupted. Now go back to yourself. Well, I will. I'm one of those people who go through the world giving other people thrills but getting few myself, except those I read into men on such nights as these. I have the social courage to go on the stage, but not the energy. I haven't the patience to write books, and I never met a man I'd marry. However, <laughs> I'm only eighteen. The storm was dying down softly, and only the wind kept up its ghostly surge and made the stack lean and gravely settle from side to side. Amory was in a trance. He felt that every moment was precious. He had never met a girl like this before. She would never seem quite the same again. He didn't at all feel like a character in a play, the appropriate feeling in an unconventional situation. Instead, he had a sense of coming home. "'I have just made a great decision,' said Eleanor after another pause, "'and that is why I'm here.' to answer another of your questions. I have just decided that I don't believe in immortality." "'Really? How banal!' "'Frightfully so,' she answered, but depressing with a stale, sickly depression nevertheless. I came out here to get wet, like a wet hen. Wet hens always have a great clarity of mind,' she concluded. "'Go on.' Amory said politely. Well, I'm not afraid of the dark, so I put on my slicker and rubber boots and came out. 
You see, I was always afraid before, to say I didn't believe in God, because the lightning might strike me. But here I am, and it hasn't, of course. But the main point is that this time I wasn't any more afraid of it than I had been when I was a Christian scientist, like I was last year. So now I know I'm a materialist, and I was fraternizing with the hay when you came out and stood by the woods scared to death. "'Why, you little wretch!' cried Amory indignantly. "'Scared of what?' "'Yourself!' she shouted, and he jumped. She clapped her hands and laughed. "'See? See? Conscience kill it like me! Eleanor Savage, materiologist! No jumping, no starting! Come early!' "'But I have to have a soul,' he objected. "'I can't be rational, and I won't be molecular.' She leaned toward him, her burning eyes never leaving his own, and whispered with a sort of romantic finality, "'I thought so, Juan. I feared so. You're sentimental. You're not like me. I'm a romantic little materialist.' "'I'm not sentimental. I'm as romantic as you are. The idea, you know, is that the sentimental person thinks things will last.' The romantic person has a desperate confidence that they won't. This was an ancient distinction of Amory's. Epigrams! I'm going home, she said sadly. Let's get off the haystack and walk to the crossroads. They slowly descended from their perch. She would not let him help her down, and motioning him away, arrived in a graceful lump in the soft mud, where she sat for an instant, laughing at herself. Then she jumped to her feet and slipped her hand into his, and they tiptoed across the fields, jumping and swinging from dry spot to dry spot. A transcendent delight seemed to sparkle in every pool of water, for the moon had risen, and the storm had scurried away into western Maryland. When Eleanor's arm touched his, he felt his hands grow cold with deadly fear, lest he should lose the shadow-brush with which his imagination was painting wonders of her. He watched her from the corner of his eyes, as ever he did when he walked with her. She was a feast and a folly, and he wished it had been his destiny to sit forever on a haystack and see life through her green eyes. His paganism soared that night, and when she faded out like a grey ghost down the road, a deep singing came out of the fields and filled his way homeward. All night the summer moths flitted in and out of Amory's window. All night large, looming sounds swayed in mystic reverie through the silver grain, and he lay awake in the clear darkness. SEPTEMBER Amory selected a blade of grass and nibbled at it scientifically. "'I never fall in love in August or September,' he proffered. "'When, then?' "'Christmas or Easter. I'm a liturgist.' "'Easter!' She turned up her nose. Huh! Spring in corsets. Easter would bore spring, wouldn't she? Easter has her hair braided, wears a tailored suit. Bind on thy sandals, O thou most fleet, over the splendor and speed of thy feet, quoted Eleanor softly, and then added, I suppose Halloween is a better day for autumn than Thanksgiving. Much better and Christmas Eve does very well for winter, but summer, 
"'Summer has no day,' she said. "'We can't possibly have a summer, love. So many people have tried that the names become proverbial. Summer is only the unfulfilled promise of spring, a charlatan in place of the warm, balmy nights I dream of in April. It's a sad season of life without growth. It has no day.' Fourth of July,' Amory suggested facetiously. "'Don't be funny,' she said, raking him with her eyes. "'Well, what could fulfill the promise of spring?' She thought a moment. "'Oh, I suppose heaven would, if there was one,' she said finally. "'A sort of pagan heaven. You ought to be a materialist,' she continued irrelevantly. "'Why?' "'Because you look a good deal like the pictures of Rupert Brooke.' To some extent Amory tried to play Rupert Brooke as long as he knew Eleanor. What he said, his attitude toward life, toward her, toward himself, were all reflexes of the dead Englishman's literary moods. Often she sat in the grass, a lazy wind playing with her short hair, her voice husky as she ran up and down the scale from Grant Chester to Waikiki. There was something most passionate in Eleanor's reading aloud. They seemed nearer, not only mentally, but physically, when they read, than when she was in his arms, and this was often, for they fell half into love almost from the first. Yet was Amory capable of love now? He could, as always, run through the emotions in a half-hour, but even while they reveled in their imaginations, he knew that neither of them could care as he had cared once before. I suppose that was why they turned to Brooke and Swinburne, and Shelley. Their chance was to make everything fine and finished and rich and imaginative. They must bend tiny golden tentacles from his imagination to hers, that would take the place of the great deep love that was never so near, yet never so much of a dream. One poem they read over and over, Swinburne's Triumph of Time, and four lines of it rang in his memory afterward on warm nights when he saw the fireflies among dusky tree-trunks, and heard the low drone of many frogs. Then Eleanor seemed to come out of the night and stand by him, and he heard her throaty voice, with its tone of a fleecy-headed drum, repeating, "'Is it worth a tear, or is it worth an hour, to think of things that are well outworn?' A fruitless husk and fugitive flower, the dream foregone, and the deed forborn. They were formally introduced two days later, and his aunt told him her history. The Ramillies were two, old Mr. Ramillie and his granddaughter Eleanor. She had lived in France with a restless mother whom Amory imagined to have been very like his own, on whose death she had come to America, to live in Maryland. She had gone to Baltimore first to stay with a bachelor uncle, and there she insisted on being a debutante at the age of seventeen. She had a wild winter and arrived in the country in March, having quarrelled frantically with all her Baltimore relatives, and shocked them into fiery protest. A rather fast crowd had come out, who drank cocktails and limousines, and were promiscuously condescending and patronizing toward older people and Eleanor with an esprit that hinted strongly of the boulevards, 
led many innocents still redolent of St. Timothy's and Farmington into paths of Bohemian naughtiness. When the story came to her uncle, a forgetful cavalier of a more hypocritical era, there was a scene from which Eleanor emerged, subdued, but rebellious and indignant, to seek haven with her grandfather who hovered in the country on the near side of senility. That's as far as her story went. She told him the rest herself, but that was later. Often they swam, and as Amory floated lazily in the water, he shut his mind to all thoughts except those of hazy soap-bubble lands where the sun splattered through wind-drunk trees. How could anyone possibly think or worry, or do anything except splash and dive and loll there on the edge of time while the flower months failed? Let the days move over, sadness and memory and pain recurred outside, and here, once more, before he went on to meet them, he wanted to drift and be young. There were days when Amory resented that life had changed from an even progress along a road stretching ever in sight, with the scenery merging and blending, into a succession of quick, unrelated scenes, two years of sweat and blood, that sudden absurd instinct for paternity that Rosalind had stirred, the half-sensual, half-neurotic quality of this autumn with Eleanor. He felt that it would take all time, more than he could ever spare, to glue these strange cumbersome pictures into the scrapbook of his life. It was all like a banquet where he sat for this half-hour of his youth and tried to enjoy brilliant Epicurean courses. Dimly he promised himself a time where all should be welded together. For months it seemed that he had alternated between being borne along a stream of love or fascination, or left in an eddy, and in the eddies he had not desired to think, rather to be picked up on a wave's top and swept along again. The despairing dying autumn and our love, how well they harmonize," said Eleanor sadly one day as they lay dripping by the water. The Indian summer of our hearts. He ceased. Tell me, she said finally, was she light or dark? Light. Was she more beautiful than I am? I don't know, said Amory shortly. One night they walked while the moon rose, and poured a great burden of glory over the garden, until it seemed fairyland with Amory and Eleanor, dim phantasmal shapes, expressing eternal beauty in curious elfin love moods. Then they turned out of the moonlight into the trellised darkness of a vine-hung pagoda, where there were scents so plaintive as to be nearly musical. "'Light a match,' she whispered. "'I want to see you.' scratch flare the night and the scarred trees were like scenery in a play and to be there with eleanor shadowy and unreal seemed somehow oddly familiar amory thought how it was only the past that ever seemed strange and unbelievable the match went out it's black as pitch we're just voices now murmured eleanor little lonesome voices. Light another. That was my last match. Suddenly he caught her in his arms. You are mine! You know you're mine! 
he cried wildly. The moonlight twisted in through the vines and listened. The fireflies hung upon their whispers, as if to win his glance from the glory of their eyes. End of this part of chapter 3 Chapter Three, Part Two of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Book Two, Chapter Three, Part Two. THE END OF SUMMER No wind is stirring in the grass. Not one wind stirs. The water in the hidden pools as glass fronts the full moon and so inters the golden token in its icy mass, chanted Eleanor to the trees that skeletoned the body of the night. Isn't it ghostly here? If you can hold your horse's feet up, Let's cut through the woods and find the hidden pools. It's after one, and you'll get the devil, he objected, and I don't know enough about horses to put one away in the pitch dark. Shut up, you old fool, she whispered irrelevantly, and leaning over she patted him lazily with her riding crop. You can leave your old plug in our stable, and I'll send him over tomorrow. But my uncle has got to drive me to the station with this old plug at seven o'clock. Don't be a spoil-sport. Remember, you have a tendency toward wavering that prevents you from being the entire light of my life. Amory drew his horse up close beside, and, leaning toward her, grasped her hand. Say I am, quick, or I'll pull you over and make you ride behind me. She looked up and smiled and shook her head excitedly. "'Oh, do! Oh, rather, don't! Why are all the exciting things so uncomfortable, like fighting and exploring and skiing in Canada? By the way, we're going to ride up Harper's Hill. I think that comes in our programme about five o'clock.' "'You little devil!' Amory growled. "'You're going to make me stay up all night and sleep in the train like an immigrant all day tomorrow, going back to New York.' "'Hush!' Someone's coming along the road. Let's go. Whoop! And with a shout that probably gave the belated traveller a series of shivers, she turned her horse into the woods, and Amory followed slowly, as he had followed her all day for three weeks. The summer was over, but he had spent the days in watching Eleanor, a graceful, facile Manfred, build herself intellectual and imaginative pyramids while she reveled in the artificialities of the temperamental teens, and they wrote poetry at the dinner-table. When vanity kissed vanity, a hundred happy Junes ago, he pondered o'er her breathlessly, and, that all men might ever know, he rhymed her eyes with life and death. Through time I'll save my love, he said, yet beauty vanished with his breath and, with her lovers, she was dead. Ever his wit, and not her eyes, ever his art, and not her hair. Who'd learn a trick in rhyme, 
be wise and pause before his sonnet there so all my words however true might sing you to a thousandth june and no one ever know that you were beauty for an afternoon so he wrote one day when he pondered how coldly we thought of the dark lady of the sonnets and how little we remembered her as the great man wanted her remembered for what shakespeare must have desired to have been able to write with such divine despair was that the lady should live and now we have no real interest in her the irony of it is that if he had cared more for the poem than for the lady the sonnet would be only obvious imitative rhetoric and no one would ever have read it after twenty years this was the last night amory ever saw eleanor he was leaving in the morning and they had agreed to take a long farewell trot by the cold moonlight she wanted to talk she said perhaps the last time in her life that she could be rational she meant pose with comfort so they had turned into the woods and rode for half an hour with scarcely a word except when she whispered damn at a bothersome branch whispered it as no other girl was ever able to whisper it then they started up harper's hill walking their tired horses good lord it's quiet here whispered eleanor much more lonesome than the woods i hate woods amory said shuddering any kind of foliage or underbrush at night out here it's so broad and easy on the spirit the long slope of a long hill and the cold moon rolling moonlight down it and thee and me last and most important it was quiet that night the straight road they followed up to the edge of the cliff knew few footsteps at any time only an occasional negro cabin silver-gray in the rock-ribbed moonlight broke the long line of bare ground behind lay the black edge of the woods like a dark frosting on white cake and ahead the sharp high horizon it was much colder so cold that it settled on them and drove all the warm nights from their minds the end of summer said eleanor softly listen to the beat of our horses hoofs tomp 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 a tomp have you ever been feverish and had all noises divide into tomp 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 until you could swear eternity was divisible into so many tumps that's the way i feel old horses go tump tump i guess that's the only thing that separates horses and clocks from us human beings can't go tump 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 without going crazy the breeze freshened and eleanor pulled her cape around her and shivered are you very cold asked amory no i'm thinking about myself my black old inside self the real one with a fundamental honesty that keeps me from being absolutely wicked by making me realize my own sins they were riding up close by the cliff and amory gazed over where the fall met the ground a hundred feet below a black stream made a sharp line broken by tiny glints in the swift water rotten rotten old world broke out eleanor suddenly and the wretchedest thing of all is me oh why am i a girl why am i not a stupid look at you you're stupider than i am not much but some 
and you can lope about and get bored and then lope somewhere else, and you can play around with girls without being involved in meshes of sentiment, and you can do anything and be justified, and here am I with the brains to do everything, yet tied to the sinking ship of future matrimony. If I were born a hundred years from now, well and good, but now what's in store for me? I have to marry. That goes without saying. Who? I'm too bright for most men, and yet I have to descend to their level and let them patronize my intellect in order to get their attention. Every year that I don't marry I've got less chance for a first-class man. At the best I can have my choice from one or two cities, and, of course, I have to marry into a dinner-coat. Listen, she leaned close again. I like clever men and good-looking men, and, of course, no one cares more for personality than I do. Oh, just one person in fifty has any glimmer of what sex is. I'm hipped on Freud and all that, but it's rotten that every bit of real love in the world is ninety-nine percent passion and one little soupçon of jealousy. She finished as suddenly as she began. "'Of course you're right,' Amory agreed. "'It's a rather unpleasant, overpowering force that's part of the machinery under everything. It's like an actor that lets you see his mechanics. Wait a minute till I think this out.' He paused and tried to get a metaphor. They had turned the cliff and were riding along the road about fifty feet to the left. "'You see, everyone's got to have some cloak to throw around it. The mediocre intellects. Plato's second class, used the remnants of romantic chivalry diluted with Victorian sentiment, and we who consider ourselves the intellectuals, cover it up by pretending that it's another side of us, has nothing to do with our shining brains. We pretend that the fact that we realize it is really absolving us from being a prey to it. But the truth is that sex is right in the middle of our purest abstractions, so close that it obscures vision. I can kiss you now, and will." He leaned toward her in the saddle, but she drew away. "'I can't. I can't kiss you now. I'm more sensitive.' "'You're more stupid, then,' he declared rather impatiently. "'Intellect is no protection from sex any more than convention is.' "'What is?' she fired up. "'The Catholic Church or the maxims of Confucius?' Amory looked up, taken rather aback. "'That's your panacea, isn't it?' she cried. "'Oh, you're just an old hypocrite, too. Thousands of scowling priests keeping the degenerate Italians and illiterate Irish repented with gabble-gabble about the Sixth and Ninth Commandments. It's just all cloaks, sentiment, and spiritual rouge and panaceas. I'll tell you that there is no God, not even a definite abstract goodness.' So it's all got to be worked out for the individual, by the individual, here in high white foreheads like mine, and you're too much the prig to admit it." She let go her reins and shook her little fists at the stars. "'If there's a god, let him strike me! Strike me!' "'Talking about God again, after the manner of atheists,' Amory said sharply. His materialism, always a thin cloak, was torn to shreds by Eleanor's blasphemy. She knew it, and it angered him that she knew it. 
and like most intellectuals who don't find faith convenient, he continued coldly, like Napoleon and Oscar Wilde and the rest of your type, you'll yell loudly for a priest on your deathbed. Eleanor drew her horse up sharply, and he reined in beside her. "'Will I?' she said in a queer voice that scared him. "'Will I? Watch! I'm going over the cliff!' And before he could interfere she had turned and was riding breakneck for the end of the plateau. He wheeled and started after her, his body like ice, his nerves in a vast clangor. There was no chance of stopping her. The moon was under a cloud, and her horse would step blindly over. Then some ten feet from the edge of the cliff she gave a sudden shriek and flung herself sideways, plunged from her horse, and, rolling over twice, landed in a pile of brush five feet from the edge. The horse went over with a frantic whinny. In a minute he was by Eleanor's side, and saw that her eyes were open. "'Eleanor!' he cried. She did not answer, but her lips moved, and her eyes filled with sudden tears. "'Eleanor, are you hurt?' "'No, I don't think so,' she said faintly, and then began weeping. "'My horse dead?' "'Good God, yes!' "'Oh!' she wailed. I thought I was going over. I didn't know. He helped her gently to her feet and boosted her onto his saddle. So they started homeward, Amory walking, and she bent forward on the pommel, sobbing bitterly. I've got a crazy streak, she faltered. Twice before I've done things like that. When I was eleven, mother went, went mad, stark, raving crazy. We were in Vienna. All the way back she talked haltingly about herself, and Amory's love waned slowly with the moon. At her door they started from habit to kiss good-night, but she could not run into his arms, nor were they stretched to meet her as in the week before. For a minute they stood there, hating each other with a bitter sadness. But as Amory had loved himself in Eleanor, so now what he hated was only a mirror. Their poses were strewn about the pale dawn like broken glass. The stars were long gone, and there were left only the little sighing gusts of wind and the silences between. But naked souls are poor things ever, and soon he turned homeward, and let new lights come in with the sun. A POEM THAT Eleanor SENT AMORY SEVERAL YEARS LATER Here, earth-born, over the lilt of the water, lisping its music and bearing a burden of light, bosoming day as a laughing and radiant daughter, here we may whisper unheard, unafraid of the night. Walking alone, was it splendour or what we were bound with, deep in the time when summer lets down her hair, shadows we loved and the patterns they covered the ground with, tapestries mystical, faint in the breathless air. That was the day, and the night for another story, pale as a dream and shadowed with pencilled trees. Ghosts of the stars came by who had sought for glory, whispered to us of peace in the plaintive breeze, whispered of old dead faiths that the day had shattered, youth the penny that bought delight of the moon. That was the urge that we knew, and the language that mattered. That was the debt that we paid to the usurer. June. 
here deepest of dreams by the waters that bring not anything back of the past that we need not know what if the light is but sun and the little strings sing not we are together it seems i have loved you so what did the last night hold with the summer over drawing us back to the home in the changing glade what leered out of the dark in the ghostly clover god till you stirred in your sleep and were wild afraid well we have passed we are chronicle now to the eerie curious metal from meteors that failed in the sky earth-born the tireless is stretched by the water quite weary close to this ununderstandable changeling that's i fear is an echo we trace to security's daughter now we are faces and voices and less too soon whispering half-love over the lilt of the water youth the penny that bought delight of the moon a poem amory sent to eleanor and which he called summer storm faint winds and a song fading and leaves falling faint winds and far away a fading laughter and the rain and over the fields a voice calling our grey-blown cloud scurries and lifts above slides on the sun and flutters there to waft her sisters on the shadow of a dove fails on the coat the trees are filled with wings and down the valley through the crying trees the body of the darker storm flies brings with its new air the breath of sunken seas and slender tenuous thunder but i wait watch for the mists and the blacker rain heavier winds that stir the veil of fate happier winds that pile her hair again they tear me teach me strew the heavy air upon me winds that i know and storm there was a summer every rain was rare there was a season every wind was warm and now you pass me in the mist your hair rain blown about you damp lips curved once more in that wild irony that gay despair that made you old when we have met before wraith-like you drift on out before the rain across the fields blown with the stemless flowers with your old hopes dead leaves and loves again dim as a dream and wan with all old hours whispers will creep into the growing dark tumult will die over the trees now night tears from her wetted breast the splattered blouse of day glides down the dreaming hills tear bright to cover with her hair the eerie green love for the dusk love for the glistening after quiet the trees to their last tops serene faint winds and far away a fading laughter end of chapter three Book Two, Chapter Four of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise 
by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Book Two, Chapter Four, The Supercilious Sacrifice. Atlantic City. Amory paced the boardwalk at day's end, lulled by the everlasting surge of changing waves, smelling the half-mournful odor of the salt breeze. The sea, he thought, had treasured its memories deeper than the faithless land. It seemed still to whisper of Norse galleys ploughing the water-world under raven-figured flags, of the British dreadnoughts, grey bulwarks of civilization steaming up through the fog of one dark July into the North Sea. Well, Amory Blaine! Amory looked down into the street below. A low racing car had drawn to a stop, and a familiar, cheerful face protruded from the driver's seat. Come on down, goofer! cried Alec. Amory called a greeting, and descending a flight of wooden steps approached the car. He and Alec had been meeting intermittently, but the barrier of Rosalind lay always between them. He was sorry for this. He hated to lose Alec. Mr. Blaine, this is Miss Watterson, Miss Wayne, and Mr. Tully. How do you do? Amory, said Alec exuberantly, if you'll jump in we'll take you to some secluded nook and give you a wee jolt of bourbon. Amory considered. That's an idea. Step in. Move over, Jill, and Amory will smile very handsomely at you. Amory squeezed into the back seat beside a gaudy, vermilion-lipped blonde. "'Hello, Doug Fairbanks,' she said flippantly. "'Walking for exercise or hunting for company?' "'I was counting the waves,' replied Amory gravely. "'I'm going in for statistics.' "'Don't kid me, Doug.' When they reached an unfrequented side street, Alec stopped the car among deep shadows. "'What are you doing down here these cold days, Amory?' he demanded, as he produced a quart of bourbon from under the fur rug. Amory avoided the question. Indeed, he had had no definite reason for coming to the coast. "'Do you remember that party of ours, sophomore year?' he asked instead. "'Do I? When we slept in the pavilions up in Asbury Park. Lord, Alec!' It's hard to think that Jesse and Dick and Carrie are all three dead. Alec shivered. Don't talk about it. These dreary fall days depress me enough. Jill seemed to agree. Doug here is sort of gloomy anyways, she commented. Tell him to drink deep. It's good and scarce these days. What I really want to ask you, Amory, is where you are— Why, New York, I suppose— I mean to-night, because if you haven't got a room yet, you'd better help me out. Glad to. You see, Tully and I have two rooms with bath between at the Rainier, and he's got to go back to New York. I don't want to have to move. Question is, will you occupy one of the rooms? Amory was willing, if he could get in right away. You'll find the key in the office. The rooms are in my name. Declining further locomotion or further stimulation, Amory left the car and sauntered back along the boardwalk to the hotel. He was in an eddy again, a deep lethargic gulf, without desire to work or write, love or dissipate. For the first time in his life he rather longed for death to roll over his generation, 
obliterating their petty fevers and struggles and exultations. His youth seemed never so vanished as now in the contrast between the utter loneliness of this visit and that riotous joyful party of four years before. Things that had been the merest commonplaces of his life then, deep sleep, the sense of beauty around him, all desire had flown away, and the gaps they left were filled only with the great listlessness of his disillusion. To hold a man, a woman has to appeal to the worst in him. This sentence was the thesis of most of his bad nights, of which he felt this was to be one. His mind had already started to play variations on the subject. Tireless passion, fierce jealousy, longing to possess and crush, these alone were left of all his love for Rosalind. These remained to him as payment for the loss of his youth, bitter calomel under the thin sugar of love's exaltation. In his room he undressed, and, wrapping himself in blankets to keep out the chill October air, drowsed in an armchair by the open window. He remembered a poem he had read months before. O oh, staunch old heart who toiled so long for me! I waste my years sailing along the sea. Yet he had no sense of waste, no sense of the present hope that waste implied. He felt that life had rejected him. Rosalind! Rosalind! He poured the words softly into the half-darkness, until she seemed to permeate the room. The wet salt breeze filled his hair with moisture. The rim of a moon seared the sky and made the curtains dim and ghostly. He fell asleep. When he awoke it was very late and quiet. The blanket had slipped partly off his shoulders, and he touched his skin to find it damp and cold. Then he became aware of a tense whispering not ten feet away. He became rigid. "'Don't make a sound!' It was Alec's voice. "'Jill, do you hear me?' Yes, breathed very low, very frightened. They were in the bathroom. Then his ears caught a louder sound from somewhere along the corridor outside. It was a mumbling of men's voices and a repeated muffled rapping. Amory threw off the blankets and moved close to the bathroom door. My God, came the girl's voice again. You'll have to let them in. Shh. Suddenly a steady, insistent knocking began at Emery's hall door, and simultaneously out of the bathroom came Alec, followed by the vermilion-lipped girl. They were both clad in pajamas. Emery! Emery! An anxious whisper. What's the trouble? It's house detectives. My God, Emery, they're just looking for a test case. Well, better let them in. You don't understand. They can get me under the Man Act." The girl followed him slowly, a rather miserable, pathetic figure in the darkness. Emery tried to plan quickly. "'You make a racket, and let them in your room,' he suggested anxiously, and I'll get her out by this door." "'They're here, too, though. They'll watch this door.' "'Can't you give a wrong name?' "'No chance. I registered under my own name. Besides, they trail the auto-license number. Say you're married. Jill says one of the house detectives knows her. The girl had stolen to the bed and tumbled upon it, 
lay there listening wretchedly to the knocking which had grown gradually to a pounding. Then came a man's voice, angry and imperative. "'Open up, or we'll break the door in!' In the silence when his voice ceased, Amory realized that there were other things in the room besides people. Over and around the figure crouched on the bed there hung an aura, gossamer as a moonbeam, tainted as stale weak wine, yet a horror, diffusively brooding already over the three of them. And over by the window among the stirring curtains stood something else, featureless and indistinguishable, yet strangely familiar. Simultaneously two great cases presented themselves side by side to Amory. All that took place in his mind, then, occupied in actual time, less than ten seconds. The first fact that flashed radiantly on his comprehension was the great impersonality of sacrifice. He perceived that what we call love and hate, reward and punishment, had no more to do with it than the date of the month. He quickly recapitulated the story of a sacrifice he had heard of in college. A man had cheated in an examination. His roommate in a gust of sentiment had taken the entire blame. Due to the shame of it, the innocent one's entire future seemed shrouded in regret and failure, capped by the ingratitude of the real culprit. He had finally taken his own life. Years afterward the facts had come out. At the time the story had both puzzled and worried Amory. Now he realized the truth, that sacrifice was no purchase of freedom. It was like a great elective office, it was like an inheritance of power, to certain people at certain times an essential luxury, carrying with it not a guarantee but a responsibility, not a security but an infinite risk. Its very momentum might drag him down to ruin. The passing of the emotional wave that made it possible might leave the one who made it high and dry forever on an island of despair. Amory knew that afterward Alec would secretly hate him for having done so much for him. All this was flung before Amory like an open scroll, while ulterior to him and speculating upon him were those two breathless listening forces, the gossamer aura that hung over and about the girl, and that familiar thing by the window. Sacrifice by its very nature was arrogant and impersonal. Sacrifice should be eternally supercilious. Weep not for me, but for thy children. That, thought Amory, would be somehow the way God would talk to me. Amory felt a sudden surge of joy, and then like a face in a motion picture, the aura over the bed faded out. The dynamic shadow by the window, that was as near as he could name it, remained for the fraction of a moment, and then the breeze seemed to lift it swiftly out of the room. He clinched his hands in quick, ecstatic excitement. The ten seconds were up. "'Do what I say, Alec, do what I say. Do you understand?' Alec looked at him dumbly, his face a tableau of anguish. "'You have a family,' continued Amory slowly. "'You have a family, and it's important that you should get out of this. Do you hear me?' He repeated clearly what he had said. "'Do you hear me?' "'I hear you.' The voice was curiously strained. The eyes never for a second left Amory's. "'Alec, you're going to lie down here. If anyone comes in, you act drunk. You do what I say. If you don't, I'll probably kill you.' 
There was another moment while they stared at each other, then Amory went briskly to the bureau, and taking his pocket-book, beckoned peremptorily to the girl. He heard one word from Alec that sounded like penitentiary. Then he and Jill were in the bathroom with the door bolted behind them. "'You're here with me,' he said sternly. "'You've been with me all evening.' She nodded, gave a little half-cry. In a second he had the door of the other room open, and three men entered. There was an immediate flood of electric light, and he stood there blinking. "'You've been playing a little too dangerous a game, young man,' Amory laughed. "'Well?' The leader of the trio nodded authoritatively at a burly man in a check suit. "'All right, Olson.' "'I got you, Mr. O'May,' said Olson, nodding. The other two took a curious glance at their quarry, and then withdrew, closing the door angrily behind them. The burly man regarded Amory contemptuously. "'Didn't you ever hear of the Man Act? Coming down here with her,' he indicated the girl with his thumb, "'with a New York license on your car, to a hotel like this.' He shook his head, implying that he had struggled over Amory, but now gave him up. "'Well?' said Amory, rather impatiently. "'What do you want us to do?' "'Get dressed quick, and tell your friend not to make such a racket.' Jill was sobbing noisily on the bed, but at these words she subsided sulkily, and, gathering up her clothes, retired to the bathroom. As Amory slipped into Alec's BVDs, he found that his attitude toward the situation was agreeably humorous. The aggrieved virtue of the burly man made him want to laugh. "'Anybody else here?' demanded Olson, trying to look keen and ferret-like. "'Fellow who had the rooms,' said Amory carelessly. "'He's drunk as an owl, though. Been in there asleep since six o'clock. "'I'll take a look at him presently.' "'How did you find out?' asked Amory curiously. "'Night clerk saw you go upstairs with this woman.' Amory nodded. Jill reappeared from the bathroom, completely if rather untidily arrayed. "'Now, then,' began Olson, producing a notebook, "'I want your real names. No damn John Smith or Mary Brown.' "'Wait a minute,' said Amory quietly. "'Just drop that big bully stuff. We merely got caught, that's all.' Olson glared at him. "'Name,' he snapped. Amory gave his name and New York address. And the lady? Miss Jill. Say, said Olson indignantly, just ease up on the nursery rhymes. What's your name? Sarah Murphy? Minnie Jackson? Oh, my God! cried the girl, cupping her tear-stained face in her hands. I don't want my mother to know. I don't want my mother to know. Come on, now. Shut up! cried Amory at Olson. An instant's pause. "'Stella Robbins,' she faltered finally. "'General Delivery, Rugway, New Hampshire.' Olson snapped his notebook shut and looked at them very ponderously. "'By rights the hotel could turn the evidence over to the police, and you'd go to penitentiary, you would, for bringing a girl from one state to another for immoral purposes.' He paused to let the majesty of his words sink in. "'But—' The hotel is going to let you off. "'It doesn't want to get in the papers,' cried
cried Jill fiercely. Let us off! Ha! Huh. A great lightness surrounded Amory. He realized that he was safe, and only then did he appreciate the full enormity of what he might have incurred. However, continued Olson, there's a protective association among the hotels. There's been too much of this stuff, and we got an arrangement with the newspapers so that you get a little free publicity. Not the name of the hotel, but just a line saying that you had a little trouble in Atlantic City. See? I see. You're getting off light, damn light, but— Come on, said Amory briskly. Let's get out of here. We don't need a valedictory. Olson walked through the bathroom and took a cursory glance at Alec's still form. Then he extinguished the lights and motioned them to follow him. As they walked into the elevator, Amory considered a piece of bravado, yielded finally. He reached out and tapped Olson on the arm. "'Would you mind taking off your hat? There's a lady in the elevator.' Olson's hat came off slowly. There was a rather embarrassing two minutes under the lights of the lobby, while the night clerk and a few belated guests stared at them curiously, the loudly dressed girl with bent head, the handsome young man with his chin several points aloft. The inference was quite obvious. Then the chill outdoors, where the salt air was fresher and keener, still with the first hints of morning. "'You can get one of those taxis and beat it.' said Olson, pointing to the blurred outline of two machines, whose drivers were presumably asleep inside. "'Good-bye,' said Olson. He reached in his pocket suggestively, but Amory snorted, and taking the girl's arm turned away. "'Where did you tell the driver to go?' she asked as they whirled along the dim street. "'The station.' "'If that guy writes my mother—he won't.' Nobody'll ever know about this, except our friends and enemies. Dawn was breaking over the sea. It's getting blue, she said. It does very well, agreed Amory critically, and then, as an afterthought, it's almost breakfast time. Do you want something to eat? Food, she said with a cheerful laugh. <laughs> Food is what queered the party. We ordered a big supper to be sent up to the room about two o'clock. Alec didn't give the waiter a tip, so I guess the little bastard snitched. Jill's low spirit seemed to have gone faster than the scattering night. Let me tell you, she said emphatically, when you want to stage that sort of party, stay away from liquor, and when you want to get tight, stay away from bedrooms. I'll remember. He tapped suddenly at the glass, and they drew up at the door of an all-night restaurant. "'Is Alec a great friend of yours?' asked Jill as they perched themselves on high stools inside, and set their elbows on the dingy counter. "'He used to be. He probably won't want to be any more, and never understand why.' "'It's sort of crazy, you taking all that blame. Is he pretty important? Kind of more important than you are?' Amory laughed. "'That remains to be seen,' he answered. "'That's the question.'" THE COLLAPSE OF SEVERAL PILLARS Two days later, back in New York, Amory found in a newspaper what he had been searching for, a dozen lines which announced to whom it might concern that Mr. Amory Blaine, 
who gave his address as etc had been requested to leave his hotel in atlantic city because of entertaining in his room a lady not his wife then he started and his fingers trembled for directly above was a longer paragraph of which the first words were mr and mrs leland r connage are announcing the engagement of their daughter rosalind to mr j dawson ryder of hartford connecticut he dropped the paper and lay down on his bed with a frightened sinking sensation in the pit of his stomach she was gone definitely finally gone until now he had half unconsciously cherished the hope deep in his heart that some day she would need him and send for him cry that it had been a mistake that her heart ached only for the pain she had caused him never again could he find even the sombre luxury of wanting her not this rosalind harder older nor any beaten broken woman that his imagination brought to the door of his forties amory had wanted her youth the fresh radiance of her mind and body the stuff that she was selling now once and for all so far as he was concerned young rosalind was dead a day later came a crisp terse letter from mr barton in chicago which informed him that as three more street-car companies had gone into the hands of receivers he could expect for the present no further remittances last of all on a dazed sunday night a telegram told him of monseigneur darcy's sudden death in philadelphia five days before he knew then what it was that he had perceived among the curtains of the room in atlantic city End of chapter. Book Two, Chapter Five of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald Book Two, Chapter Five The Egotist Becomes a Personage A fathom deep in sleep I lie, With old desires, restrained before, To clamour lifeward with a cry, As dark flies out the greying door. And so in quest of creeds to share, I seek assertive day again, But old monotony is there, Endless avenues of rain. Oh, might I rise again, might I, Throw off the heat of that old wine, See the new morning mask the sky With fairy towers, line on line, Find each mirage in the high air, A symbol, not a dream again, But old monotony is there, endless avenues of rain under the glass portcullis of a theatre amory stood watching the first great drops of rain splatter down and flatten to dark stains on the sidewalk the air became gray and opalescent a solitary light suddenly outlined a window over the way then another light then a hundred more danced and glimmered into vision under his feet a thick iron-studded skylight turned yellow in the street the lamps of the taxicabs sent out glistening sheens along the already black pavement the unwelcome november rain had perversely stolen the day's last hour and pawned it 
with that ancient fence the night. The silence of the theatre behind him ended with a curious snapping sound, followed by the heavy roaring of a rising crowd, and the interlaced clatter of many voices. The matinee was over. He stood aside, edged a little into the rain to let the throng pass. A small boy rushed out, sniffed in the damp, fresh air, and turned up the collar of his coat. Came three or four couples in a great hurry. Came a further scattering of people whose eyes, as they emerged, glanced invariably, first at the wet street, then at the rain-filled air, finally at the dismal sky, last a dense strolling mass that depressed him with its heavy odour compounded of the tobacco smell of the men and the fetid sensuousness of stale powder on women. After the thick crowd came another scattering, a stray half-dozen, a man on crutches, finally the rattling bang of folding seats inside announced that the ushers were at work. New York seemed not so much awakening as turning over in its bed. Pallid men rushed by, pinching together their coat-collars. A great swarm of tired magpie girls from a department store crowded along with shrieks of strident laughter, three to an umbrella. A squad of marching policemen passed, already miraculously protected by oilskin capes. The rain gave Amory a feeling of detachment, and the numerous unpleasant aspects of city life without money occurred to him in threatening procession. There was the ghastly, stinking crush of the subway, the car cards thrusting themselves at one, leering out like dull boars who grab your arm with another story, the querulous worry as to whether someone isn't leaning on you, a man deciding not to give his seat to a woman, hating her for it, the woman hating him for not doing it, at worst a squalid phantasmagoria of breath and old cloth on human bodies, and the smells of the food men ate, at best just people, too hot or too cold, tired, worried. He pictured the rooms where these people lived, where the patterns of the blistered wallpapers were heavy, reiterated sunflowers on green and yellow backgrounds, where there were tin bathtubs and gloomy hallways and verdureless, unnameable spaces in back of the buildings, where even love dressed as seduction, a sordid murder around the corner, illicit motherhood in the flat above, and always there was the economical stuffiness of indoor winter, and the long summers, nightmares of perspiration between sticky enveloping walls, dirty restaurants where careless, tired people helped themselves to sugar with their own used coffee spoons leaving hard brown deposits in the bowl. It was not so bad when there were only men or else only women. It was when they were vilely herded that it all seemed so rotten. It was some shame that women gave off at having men see them tired and poor. It was some disgust that men had for women who were tired and poor. It was dirtier than any battlefield he had seen, harder to contemplate than any actual hardship molded of mire and sweat and danger, it was an atmosphere wherein birth and marriage and death were loathsome, secret things. He remembered one day in the subway when a delivery boy had brought in a great funeral wreath of fresh flowers, how the smell of it had suddenly cleared the air and given everyone in the car a momentary glow. 
I detest poor people, thought Amory suddenly. I hate them for being poor. Poverty may have been beautiful once, but it's rotten now. It's the ugliest thing in the world. It's essentially cleaner to be corrupt and rich than it is to be innocent and poor. He seemed to see again a figure whose significance had once impressed him, a well-dressed young man gazing from a club window on Fifth Avenue, and saying something to his companion with a look of utter disgust. Probably, thought Amory, what he said was, My God, aren't people horrible! Never before in his life had Amory considered poor people. He thought cynically how completely he was lacking in all human sympathy. O. Henry had found in these people romance, pathos, love, hate. Amory saw only coarseness, physical filth, and stupidity. He made no self-accusations. Never any more did he reproach himself for feelings that were natural and sincere. He accepted all his reactions as a part of him, unchangeable, unmoral. This problem of poverty transformed, magnified, attached to some grander, more dignified attitude, might some day even be his problem. At present it roused only his profound distaste. He walked over to Fifth Avenue, dodging the blind black menace of umbrellas, and standing in front of Delmonico's, hailed an autobus. Buttoning his coat closely around him, he climbed to the roof, where he rode in solitary state through the thin, persistent rain, stung into alertness by the cool moisture perpetually reborn on his cheek. Somewhere in his mind a conversation began, rather resumed its place in his attention. It was composed not of two voices, but of one, which acted alike as questioner and answerer. Question. Well, what's the situation? Answer. That I have about twenty-four dollars to my name. Question. You have the Lake Geneva estate? Answer. But I intend to keep it. Question. Can you live? Answer. I can't imagine not being able to. People make money in books, and I've found that I can always do the things that people do in books. Really, they are the only things I can do. Question. Be definite. Answer. I don't know what I'll do. Nor have I much curiosity. Tomorrow I'm going to leave New York for good. It's a bad town unless you're on top of it. Question. Do you want a lot of money? Answer. No, I'm merely afraid of being poor. Question. Very afraid? Answer. Uh, just passively afraid. Question. Where are you drifting? Answer. Don't ask me. Question. Don't you care? Answer. Rather, I don't want to commit moral suicide. Question. Have you no interests left? Answer. None. I've no more virtue to lose. Just as a cooling pot gives off heat, so all through youth and adolescence we give off calories of virtue. That's what's called ingenuousness. Question. An interesting idea. Answer. That's why a good man going wrong attracts people. They stand around and literally warm themselves at the calories of virtue he gives off. Sarah makes an unsophisticated remark, and the faces simper in delight. 
how innocent the poor child is they're warming themselves at her virtue but sarah sees the simper and never makes that remark again only she feels a little colder after that question all your calories gone answer all of them i'm beginning to warm myself at other people's virtue question are you corrupt answer i think so i'm not sure i'm not sure about good and evil at all any more question is that a bad sign in itself answer not necessarily question what would be the test of corruption answer becoming really insincere calling myself not such a bad fellow thinking i regretted my lost youth when i only envied the delights of losing it youth is like having a big plate of candy sentimentalists think they want to be in the pure simple state they were in before they ate the candy they don't they just want the fun of eating it all over again the matron doesn't want to repeat her girlhood she wants to repeat her honeymoon i don't want to repeat my innocence i want the pleasure of losing it again question where are you drifting this dialogue merged grotesquely into his mind's most familiar state a grotesque blending of desires worries exterior impressions and physical reactions one hundred and twenty-seventh street or one hundred and thirty-seventh street two and three look alike no not much seat damp are clothes absorbing wetness from seat or seat absorbing dryness from clothes sitting on wet substance gave appendicitis so froggy parker's mother said well he'd had it i'll sue the steamboat company beatrice said and my uncle has a quarter interest did beatrice go to heaven probably not he represented beatrice's immortality also love affairs of numerous dead men who surely had never thought of him if it wasn't appendicitis influenza maybe what one hundred and twentieth street that must have been one hundred and twelfth back there one o two instead of one two seven rosalind not like beatrice eleanor like beatrice only wilder and brainier apartments along here expensive probably hundred and fifty a month maybe two hundred uncle had only paid hundred a month for a whole great big house in minneapolis question were the stairs on the left or right as you came in anyway in twelve unive they were straight back and to the left what a dirty river want to go down there and see if it's dirty french rivers all brown or black so were southern rivers twenty-four dollars meant four hundred and eighty doughnuts he could live on it three months and sleep in the park wonder where jill was jill bain fain sane what the devil neck hurts darned uncomfortable seat no desire to sleep with jill what could alec see in her alec had a coarse taste in women own taste the best isabel clara rosalind eleanor were all american eleanor would pitch probably southpaw rosalind was outfield wonderful hitter clara first base maybe wonder what humbird's body looked like now if he himself hadn't been bayonet instructor 
He'd have gone up to line three months sooner, probably been killed. Where's the darned bell? The street numbers of Riverside Drive were obscured by the mist and dripping trees from anything but the swiftest scrutiny, but Amory had finally caught sight of one, 127th Street. He got off, and with no distinct destination, followed a winding, descending sidewalk and came out facing the river, in particular a long pier and a partitioned litter of shipyards for miniature craft, small launches, canoes, rowboats, and catboats. He turned northward and followed the shore, jumped a small wire fence, and found himself in a great disorderly yard adjoining a dock. The hulls of many boats in various stages of repair were around him. He smelled sawdust and paint, and the scarcely distinguishable flat odor of the Hudson. A man approached through the heavy gloom. "'Hello,' said Amory. "'Got a pass?' "'No. Is this private?' This is the Hudson River Sporting and Yacht Club. Oh, I didn't know. I'm just resting. Well, began the man dubiously, I'll go if you want me to. The man made noncommittal noises in his throat and passed on. Amory seated himself on an overturned boat and leaned forward thoughtfully until his chin rested in his hand. Misfortune is liable to make me a damn bad man, he said slowly. In the Drooping Hours While the rain drizzled on, Amory looked futilely back at the stream of his life, all its glitterings and dirty shallows. To begin with, he was still afraid. Not physically afraid any more, but afraid of people and prejudice and misery and monotony. Yet, deep in his bitter heart, he wondered if he was, after all, worse than this man or the next. He knew that he could sophisticate himself finally into saying that his own weakness was just the result of circumstances and environment, that often when he raged at himself as an egotist something would whisper ingratiatingly, No! Genius! That was one manifestation of fear, that voice which whispered that he could not be both great and good, that genius was the exact combination of those inexplicable grooves and twists in his mind, that any discipline would curb it to mediocrity. Probably more than any concrete vice or failing, Amory despised his own personality. He loathed knowing that tomorrow and the thousand days after he would swell pompously at a compliment and sulk at an ill word, like a third-rate musician or a first-class actor. He was ashamed of the fact that very simple and honest people usually distrusted him, that he had been cruel, often, to those who had sunk their personalities in him, several girls, and a man here and there through college, that he had been an evil influence on, people who had followed him here and there into mental adventures from which he alone rebounded unscathed. Usually on nights like this, for there had been many lately, he could escape from this consuming introspection by thinking of children and the infinite possibilities of children. He leaned and listened, and he heard a startled baby awake in a house across the street, and lend a tiny whimper to the still night. Quick as a flash he turned away, wondering with a touch of panic whether something in the brooding despair of his mood had made a darkness in its tiny soul. He shivered. 
what if some day the balance was overturned and he became a thing that frightened children and crept into rooms in the dark approached dim communion with those phantoms who whispered shadowy secrets to the mad of that dark continent upon the moon amory smiled a bit you're too much wrapped up in yourself he heard someone say and again get out and do some real work stop worrying he fancied a possible future comment of his own yes i was perhaps an egotist in youth but i soon found it made me morbid to think too much about myself suddenly he felt an overwhelming desire to let himself go to the devil not to go violently as a gentleman should but to sink safely and sensuously out of sight he pictured himself in an adobe house in mexico half reclining on a rug-covered couch his slender artistic fingers closed on his cigarette while he listened to guitars strumming melancholy undertones to an age-old dirge of castile and an olive-skinned carmine-lipped girl caressed his hair here he might live a strange litany delivered from right and wrong and from the hound of heaven and from every god except the exotic mexican one who was pretty slack himself and rather addicted to oriental scents delivered from success and hope and poverty into that long shoot of indulgence which led after all only to the artificial lake of death there were so many places where one might deteriorate pleasantly port said shanghai parts of turkestan constantinople the south seas all lands of sad haunting music and many odors where lust could be a mood and expression of life where the shades of night skies and sunsets would seem to reflect only moods of passion the colors of lips and poppies still weeding once he had been miraculously able to scent evil as a horse detects a broken bridge at night but the man with the queer feet in phoebe's room had diminished to the aura over jill his instinct perceived the fetidness of poverty but no longer ferreted out the deeper evils in pride and sensuality there were no more wise men there were no more heroes burn holiday was sunk from sight as though he had never lived monseigneur was dead amory had grown up to a thousand books a thousand lies he had listened eagerly to people who pretended to know who knew nothing the mystical reveries of saints that had once filled him with awe in the still hours of night now vaguely repelled him the byrons and brooks who had defied life from mountain tops were in the end but flaneurs and poseurs at best mistaking the shadow of courage for the substance of wisdom the pageantry of his disillusion took shape in a world-old procession of prophets athenians martyrs saints scientists don juans jesuits puritans fausts poets pacifists like costumed alumni at a college reunion they streamed before him as their dreams personalities and creeds had in turn thrown colored lights on his soul each had tried to express the glory of life and the tremendous significance of man each had boasted of synchronizing what had gone before into his own rickety generalities 
Each had depended, after all, on the set stage and the convention of the theatre, which is that man in his hunger for faith will feed his mind with the nearest and most convenient food. Women, of whom he had expected so much, whose beauty he had hoped to transmute into modes of art, whose unfathomable instincts, marvellously incoherent and inarticulate, he had thought to perpetuate in terms of experience. He had become merely consecrations to their own posterity. Isabel, Clara, Rosalind, Eleanor, were all removed by their very beauty, around which men had swarmed, from the possibility of contributing anything but a sick heart and a page of puzzled words to write. Amory based his loss of faith and help from others on several sweeping syllogisms. Granted that his generation, however bruised and decimated from this Victorian war, were the heirs of progress. Waving aside petty differences of conclusions which, although they might occasionally cause the deaths of several millions of young men, might be explained away, supposing that after all Bernard Shaw and Bernhardy, Bonar Law and Bethman Holvig, were mutual heirs of progress if only in agreeing against the ducking of witches, waving the artitheses and approaching individually these men who seemed to be the leaders, he was repelled by the discrepancies and contradictions in the men themselves. There was, for example, Thornton Hancock, respected by half the intellectual world as an authority on life, a man who had verified and believed the code he lived by, an educator of educators, an adviser to presidents. Yet Amory knew this man had, in his heart, leaned on the priest of another religion. And Monseigneur, upon whom a cardinal rested, had moments of strange and horrible insecurity, inexplicable in a religion that explained even disbelief in terms of its own faith. If you doubted the devil, it was the devil that made you doubt him. Amory had seen Monseigneur go to the houses of stolid Philistines, read popular novels furiously, saturate himself in routine, to escape from that horror. And this priest, a little wiser, somewhat purer, had been, Amory knew, not essentially older than he. Amory was alone. He had escaped from a small enclosure into a great labyrinth. He was where Gerthy was when he began Faust. He was where Conrad was when he wrote Almayer's Folly. Emery said to himself that there were essentially two sorts of people who through natural clarity or disillusion left the enclosure and sought the labyrinth. There were men like Wells and Plato, who had, half unconsciously, a strange hidden orthodoxy, who would accept for themselves only what could be accepted for all men incurable romanticists, who never, for all their efforts, could enter the labyrinth as stark souls. There were, on the other hand, sword-like pioneering personalities, Samuel Butler, Renan, Voltaire, who progressed much slower, yet eventually much further, not in the direct pessimistic line of speculative philosophy, but concerned in the eternal attempt to attach a positive value to life. Amory stopped. He began for the first time in his life to have a strong distrust of all generalities and epigrams. They were too easy, too dangerous to the public mind. 
yet all thought usually reached the public after thirty years in some such form. Benson and Chesterton had popularized Huysmans and Newman. Shaw had sugar-coated Nietzsche and Ibsen and Schopenhauer. The man in the street heard the conclusions of dead genius through someone else's clever paradoxes and didactic epigrams. Life was a damned muddle. A football game with everyone offside and the referee gotten rid of. Everyone claiming the referee would have been on his side. Progress was a labyrinth. People plunging blindly in and then rushing wildly back, shouting that they had fought it. The invisible king, the elan vital, the principle of evolution, writing a book, starting a war, founding a school. Amory, even had he not been a selfish man, would have started all inquiries with himself. He was his own best example, sitting in the rain, a human creature of sex and pride, foiled by chance in his own temperament of the balm of love and children, preserved to help in building up the living consciousness of the race. In self-reproach and loneliness and disillusion he came to the entrance of the labyrinth. Another dawn flung itself across the river. A belated taxi hurried along the street, its lamp still shining like burning eyes in a face white from a night's carouse. A melancholy siren sounded far down the river. End of this part chapter Book Two, Chapter Five, Part Two of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Book Two, Chapter Five, Second Part. Monseigneur. Amory kept thinking how Monseigneur would have enjoyed his own funeral. It was magnificently Catholic and liturgical. Bishop O'Neill sang solemn high mass, and the Cardinal gave the final absolutions. Thornton Hancock, Mrs. Lawrence, the British and Italian ambassadors, the papal delegate, and a host of friends and priests were there yet the inexorable shears had cut through all these threads that Monseigneur had gathered into his hands. To Amory it was a haunting grief to see him lying in his coffin, with closed hands upon his purple vestments. His face had not changed, and, as he never knew he was dying, it showed no pain or fear. It was Amory's dear old friend, his and the others, for the church was full of people with daft, staring faces, the most exalted seeming the most stricken. The cardinal, like an archangel in cope and mitre, sprinkled the holy water, the organ broke into sound, the choir began to sing the Requiem Eternum. All these people grieved because they had to some extent depended upon Monseigneur. Their grief was more than sentiment for the crack in his voice or a certain break in his walk, as Wells put it. These people had leaned on Monseigneur's faith, his way of finding cheer, of making religion a thing of lights and shadows, 
making all light and shadow merely aspects of God. People felt safe when he was near. Of Amory's attempted sacrifice had been born merely the full realization of his disillusion, but of Monseigneur's funeral was born the romantic elf who was to enter the labyrinth with him. He found something that he wanted, had always wanted, and always would want, not to be admired, as he had feared, not to be loved, as he had made himself believe, but to be necessary to people, to be indispensable. He remembered the sense of security he had found in Burn. Life opened up in one of its amazing bursts of radiance, and Amory suddenly and permanently rejected an old epigram that had been playing listlessly in his mind. Very few things matter, and nothing matters very much. On the contrary, Amory felt an immense desire to give people a sense of security. THE BIG MAN WITH GOGGLES On the day that Amory started on his walk to Princeton, the sky was a colourless vault, cool, high, and barren of the threat of rain. It was a grey day, that least fleshly of all weathers, a day of dreams and far hopes and clear visions. It was a day easily associated with those abstract truths and purities that dissolve in the sunshine or fade out in mocking laughter by the light of the moon. The trees and clouds were carved in classical severity. The sounds of the countryside had harmonized to a monotone, metallic as a trumpet, breathless as the Grecian urn. The day had put Amory in such a contemplative mood that he caused much annoyance to several motorists who were forced to slow up considerably, or else run him down. So engrossed in his thoughts was he that he was scarcely surprised at that strange phenomenon, cordiality manifested within fifty miles of Manhattan, when a passing car slowed down beside him and a voice hailed him. He looked up and saw a magnificent locomobile in which sat two middle-aged men, one of them small and anxious-looking, apparently an artificial growth on the other who was large and begoggled and imposing. "'Do you want a lift?' asked the apparently artificial growth, glancing from the corner of his eye at the imposing man as if for some habitual, silent corroboration. "'You bet I do. Thanks.' The chauffeur swung open the door, and, climbing in, Amory settled himself in the middle of the back seat. He took in his companions curiously. The chief characteristic of the big man seemed to be a great confidence in himself, set off against a tremendous boredom with everything around him. That part of his face which protruded under the goggles was what is generally termed strong. Rolls of not undignified fat had collected near his chin. Somewhere above was a wide, thin mouth and the rough model for a Roman nose, and below his shoulders collapsed without a struggle into the powerful bulk of his chest and belly. He was excellently and quietly dressed. Amory noticed that he was inclined to stare straight at the back of the chauffeur's head, as if speculating steadily, but hopelessly, some baffling hirsute problem. The smaller man was remarkable only for his complete submersion in the personality of the other. He was of that lower secretarial type, who at forty have engraved upon their business cards, Assistant to the President and without a sigh consecrate the rest of their lives to second-hand mannerisms. "'Going far?' asked the smaller man, in a pleasant, disinterested way. "'Quite a stretch. 
Hiking for exercise? No, responded Amory succinctly. I'm walking because I can't afford to ride. Oh! Then again, Are you looking for work? Because there's lots of work, he continued rather testily. All this talk of lack of work. The West is especially short of labor. He expressed the West with a sweeping lateral gesture. Amory nodded politely. Have you a trade? No, Amory had no trade. Clerk, eh? No, Amory was not a clerk. Whatever your line is, said the little man, seeming to agree wisely with something Amory had said, now is the time of opportunity and business openings. He glanced again toward the big man, as a lawyer grilling a witness glances involuntarily at the jury. Amory decided that he must say something, and for the life of him could think of only one thing to say. Of course I want a great lot of money. The little man laughed mirthlessly but conscientiously. That's what everyone wants nowadays, but they don't want to work for it. A very natural, healthy desire. Almost all normal people want to be rich without great effort, except the financiers in problem plays who want to crash their way through. Don't you want easy money? Of course not, said the secretary indignantly. But, continued Amory, disregarding him, being very poor at present, I am contemplating socialism as possibly my forte. Both men glanced at him curiously. These bomb-throwers! The little man ceased as words lurched ponderously from the big man's chest. If I thought you were a bomb-thrower, I'd run you over to the Newark jail. That's what I think of socialists." Amory laughed. "'What are you?' asked the big man. "'One of these parlor Bolsheviks? One of these idealists? I must say I fail to see the difference. The idealists loaf around and write the stuff that stirs up the poor immigrants.' "'Well,' said Amory. If being an idealist is both safe and lucrative, I might try it. What's your difficulty? Lost your job? Not exactly, but, well, call it that. What was it? Writing copy for an advertising agency. Lots of money in advertising. Amory smiled discreetly. Oh, I'll admit there's money in it eventually. Talent doesn't starve any more. Even art gets enough to eat these days. Artists draw your magazine covers, write your advertisements, hash out ragtime for your theatres. By the great commercializing of printing you found a harmless, polite occupation for every genius who might have carved his own niche. But beware the artist who's an intellectual also, the artist who doesn't fit, the Rousseau, the Tolstoy, the Samuel Butler, the Amory Blaine. Who's he? demanded the little man suspiciously. Well, said Amory, he's a, he's a, an intellectual personage not very well known at present. The little man laughed his conscientious laugh, and stopped rather suddenly as Amory's burning eyes turned on him. What are you laughing at? These intellectual people. Do you know what it means? The little man's eyes twitched nervously. Why, it usually means—it always means brainy and well-educated," interrupted Amory. It means having an active knowledge of the race's experience. 
Amory decided to be very rude. He turned to the big man. "'The young man,' he indicated the secretary with his thumb, and said young man as one says bellboy, with no implication of youth, has the usual muddled connotation of all popular words. "'You object to the fact that capital controls printing?' said the big man, fixing him with his goggles. "'Yes, and I object to doing their metal work for them. It seemed to me that the root of all the business I saw around me consisted in overworking and underpaying a bunch of dubs who submitted to it. "'Here now,' said the big man, "'you'll have to admit that the laboring man is certainly highly paid. Five and six-hour days. It's ridiculous. You can't buy an honest day's work from a man in the trades unions.' "'You've brought it on yourselves.' insisted Amory. You people never make concessions until they're wrung out of you. What people? Your class. The class I belonged to until recently. Those who by inheritance or industry or brains or dishonesty have become the moneyed class. Do you imagine that if that road-mender over there had the money he'd be any more willing to give it up? No, but what's that got to do with it? The older man considered. No, I'll admit it hasn't. It rather sounds as if it had, though. In fact, continued Amory, he'd be worse. The lower classes are narrower, less pleasant, and personally more selfish, certainly more stupid. But all that has nothing to do with the question. Just exactly what is the question? Here Amory had to pause to consider exactly what the question was. Amory coins the phrase. "'When life gets hold of a brainy man of fair education,' began Amory slowly, "'that is, when he marries, he becomes, nine times out of ten, a conservative as far as existing social conditions are concerned. He may be unselfish, kind-hearted, even just in his own way, but his first job is to provide and to hold fast.' His wife shoes him on, from ten thousand a year to twenty thousand a year, on and on, in an enclosed treadmill that hasn't any windows. He's done. Life's got him. He's no help. He's a spiritually married man. Amory paused and decided that it wasn't such a bad phrase. Some men, he continued, escape the grip. Maybe their wives have no social ambitions. Maybe they've hit a sentence or two in a dangerous book that pleased them. Maybe they started on the treadmill as I did and were knocked off. Anyway, they're the congressmen you can't bribe, the presidents who aren't politicians, the writers, speakers, scientists, statesmen who aren't just popular grab-bags for a half-dozen women and children. He's the natural radical? Yes, said Amory. He may vary from the disillusioned critic like old Thornton Hancock all the way to Trotsky. Now this spiritually unmarried man hasn't direct power, for unfortunately the spiritually married man, as a by-product of his money chase, has garnered in the great newspaper, the popular magazine, the influential weekly, so that Mrs. Newspaper, Mrs. Magazine, Mrs. Weekly, can have a better limousine than those oil people across the street or those cement people round the quarter. Why not? It makes wealthy men the keepers of the world's intellectual conscience, and, 
Of course, a man who has money under one set of social institutions quite naturally can't risk his family's happiness by letting the clamour for another appear in his newspaper. "'But it appears,' said the big man. "'Where? In the discredited mediums. Rotten, cheap-papered weeklies.' "'All right. Go on.' Well, my first point is that through a mixture of conditions of which the family is the first, there are these two sorts of brains. One sort takes human nature as it finds it, uses its timidity, its weakness, and its strength for its own ends. Opposed is the man who, being spiritually unmarried, continually seeks for new systems that will control or counteract human nature. His problem is harder. It is not life that's complicated. It's the struggle to guide and control life. That is his struggle. He is a part of progress. The spiritually married man is not. The big man produced three big cigars and proffered them on his huge palm. The little man took one. Amory shook his head and reached for a cigarette. "'Go on talking,' said the big man. "'I've been wanting to hear one of you fellows.' Going Faster Modern life, began Amory again, changes no longer century by century, but year by year, ten times faster than it ever has before, populations doubling, civilizations unified more closely with other civilizations, economic interdependence, racial questions, and we're dawdling along. My idea is that we've got to go very much faster. He slightly emphasized the last words, and the chauffeur unconsciously increased the speed of the car. Amory and the big man laughed. The little man laughed, too, after a pause. "'Every child,' said Amory, "'should have an equal start. If his father can endow him with a good physique, and his mother with some common sense in his early education, that should be his heritage. If the father can't give him a good physique—' If the mother is spent in chasing men the years in which she should have been preparing herself to educate her children, so much the worse for the child. He shouldn't be artificially bolstered up with money, sent to these horrible tutoring schools, dragged through college. Every boy ought to have an equal start. "'All right,' said the big man, his goggles indicating neither approval nor objection. "'Next!' I'd have a fair trial of government ownership of all industries. That's been proven a failure. No, it merely failed. If we had government ownership, we'd have the best analytical business minds in the government working for something besides themselves. We'd have McKay's instead of Burleson's. We'd have Morgan's in the Treasury Department. We'd have Hill's running interstate commerce. We'd have the best lawyers in the Senate. They wouldn't give their best efforts for nothing. McAdoo. No, said Amory, shaking his head. Money isn't the only stimulus that brings out the best that's in a man, even in America. You said a while ago that it was. It is right now, but if it were made illegal to have more than a certain amount, the best men would all flock for the one other reward which attracts humanity. Honor. The big man made a sound that was very like boo. That's the silliest thing you've said yet. No, it isn't silly. It's quite plausible. If you'd gone to college, you'd have been struck by the fact that the men there would work twice as hard for any one of a hundred petty honors 
as those other men did who were earning their way through. "'Kids, child's play,' scoffed his antagonist. "'Not by a darn sight, unless we're all children. Did you ever see a grown man when he's trying for a secret society, or a rising family whose name is up at some club? They'll jump when they hear the sound of the word. The idea that to make a man work you've got to hold gold in front of his eyes is a growth, not an axiom. We've done that for so long that we've forgotten there's any other way. We've made a world where that's necessary. Let me tell you—Amory became emphatic. If there were ten men insured against either wealth or starvation, and offered a green ribbon for five hours' work a day, and a blue ribbon for ten hours' work a day, nine out of ten of them would be trying for the blue ribbon. That competitive instinct only wants a badge. If the size of their house is the badge, they'll sweat their heads off for that. If it's only a blue ribbon, I damn near believe they'll work just as hard. They have in other ages. I don't agree with you." "'I know it,' said Amory, nodding sadly. "'It doesn't matter any more, though. I think these people are going to come and take what they want pretty soon.' A fierce hiss came from the little man. "'Machine guns!' "'Ha! Ah, but you've taught them their use.' The big man shook his head. "'In this country there are enough property owners not to permit that sort of thing.' Amory wished he knew the statistics of property owners and non-property owners. He decided to change the subject. But the big man was aroused. "'When you talk of taking things away, you're on dangerous ground.' "'How can they get it without taking it? For years people have been stalled off with promises. Socialism may not be progress, but the threat of the red flag is certainly the inspiring force of all reform. You've got to be sensational to get attention.' Russia is your example of a beneficent violence, I suppose." "'Quite possibly,' admitted Amory. "'Of course, it's overflowing just as the French Revolution did, but I've no doubt that it's really a great experiment and well worthwhile.' "'Don't you believe in moderation?' "'You won't listen to the moderates, and it's almost too late. The truth is that the public has done one of those startling and amazing things that they do about once in a hundred years. They've seized an idea. What is it? That however the brains and abilities of men may differ, their stomachs are essentially the same. The little man gets his. If you took all the money in the world, said the little man with much profundity, and divided it up in equal— Oh, shut up, said Amory briskly and paying no attention to the little man's enraged stare, he went on with his argument. "'The human stomach,' he began, but the big man interrupted rather impatiently. "'I'm letting you talk, you know,' he said. "'But please avoid stomachs. I've been feeling mine all day. Anyway, I don't agree with one half you've said. Government ownership is the basis of your whole argument, and it's invariably a beehive of corruption.' Men won't work for blue ribbons. That's all rot." When he ceased, the little man spoke up with a determined nod, as if resolved this time to have his say out. "'There are certain things which are human nature,' he asserted with an owl-like look, "'which always have been and always will be, which can't be changed.' 
Amory looked from the small man to the big man helplessly. "'Listen to that. That's what makes me discouraged with progress. Listen to that. I can name offhand over one hundred natural phenomena that have been changed by the will of man, a hundred instincts of man that have been wiped out or are now held in check by civilization. What this man here just said has been, for thousands of years, the last refuge of the associated muttonheads of the world. It negates the efforts of every scientist, statesman, moralist, reformer, doctor, and philosopher that ever gave his life to humanity's service. It's a flat impeachment of all that's worthwhile in human nature. Every person over twenty-five years old who makes that statement in cold blood ought to be deprived of the franchise." The little man leaned back against the seat, his face purple with rage. Amory continued, addressing his remarks to the big man. These quarter-educated, stale-minded men such as your friend here, who think they think, every question that comes up, you'll find his type in the usual ghastly muddle. One minute it's the brutality and inhumanity of these Prussians. The next it's, we ought to exterminate the whole German people. They always believe that things are in a bad way now, but they haven't any faith in these idealists. One minute they call Wilson just a dreamer, not practical. A year later they rail at him for making his dreams realities. They haven't clear logical ideas on one single subject, except a sturdy, stolid opposition to all change. They don't think uneducated people should be highly paid, but they don't see that if they don't pay the uneducated people, their children are going to be uneducated too, and we're going round and round in a circle. That is the great middle class." The big man, with a broad grin on his face, leaned over and smiled at the little man. "'You're catching it pretty heavy, Garvin. How do you feel?' The little man made an attempt to smile and act as if the whole matter were so ridiculous as to be beneath notice. But Amory was not through. "'The theory that people are fit to govern themselves rests on this man. If he can be educated to think clearly, concisely and logically, freed of his habit of taking refuge in platitudes and prejudices and sentimentalisms, then I'm a militant socialist. If he can't, then I don't think it matters much what happens to man or his systems, now or hereafter." "'I am both interested and amused,' said the big man. "'You are very young.' "'Which may only mean that I have neither been corrupted nor made timid by contemporary experience. I possess the most valuable experience, the experience of the race, for in spite of going to college I've managed to pick up a good education." "'You talk glibly.' "'It's not all rubbish,' cried Amory passionately. "'This is the first time in my life I've argued socialism. It's the only panacea I know. I'm restless. My whole generation is restless. I'm sick of a system where the richest man gets the most beautiful girl if he wants her, where the artist without an income has to sell his talents to a button manufacturer. Even if I had no talents, I'd not be content to work ten years, condemned either to celibacy or a furtive indulgence, to give some man's son an automobile." "'But if you're not sure—that doesn't matter,' exclaimed Amory. "'My position couldn't be worse. A social revolution might land me on top. Of course I'm selfish. It seems to me I've been a fish out of water in too many outworn systems. 
I was probably one of the two dozen men in my class at college who got a decent education. Still they'd let any well-tutored flathead play football, and I was ineligible, because some silly old men thought we should all profit by conic sections. I loathed the army. I loathed business. I'm in love with change, and I've killed my conscience. So you'll go along crying that we must go faster. That, at least, is true, Amory insisted. Reform won't catch up to the needs of civilization unless it's made to. A laissez-faire policy is like spoiling a child by saying he'll turn out all right in the end. He will, if he's made to. But you don't believe all this socialist patter you talk. I don't know. Until I talked to you I hadn't thought seriously about it. I wasn't sure of half what I said. You puzzle me, said the big man. But you're all alike. They say Bernard Shaw, in spite of his doctrines, is the most exacting of all dramatists about his royalties, to the last farthing. Well, said Amory, I simply state that I'm a product of a versatile mind in a restless generation, with every reason to throw my mind and pen in with the radicals. Even if, deep in my heart, I thought we were all blind atoms in a world as limited as a stroke of a pendulum, I and my sort would struggle against tradition, try, at least, to displace old cants with new ones. I've thought I was right about life at various times, but faith is difficult. One thing I know, if living isn't a seeking for the grail, it may be a damned amusing game." For a minute neither spoke, and then the big man asked, "'What was your university?' "'Princeton.' The big man became suddenly interested. The expression of his goggles altered slightly. "'I sent my son to Princeton.' "'Did you?' "'Perhaps you knew him. His name was Jesse Ferenby. He was killed last year in France.' "'I knew him very well. In fact, he was one of my particular friends.' "'He was, uh, quite a fine boy. We were very close.' Amory began to perceive a resemblance between the father and the dead son, and he told himself that there had been all along a sense of familiarity. Jesse Ferenby, the man who in college had borne off the crown that he had aspired to. It was all so far away. What little boys they had been, working for blue ribbons! The car slowed up at the entrance to a great estate, ringed around by a huge hedge and a tall iron fence. "'Won't you come in for lunch?' Amory shook his head. "'Thank you, Mr. Ferenby, but I've got to get on.' The big man held out his hand. Amory saw that the fact that he had known Jesse more than outweighed any disfavor he had created by his opinions. What ghosts were people with which to work? Even the little man insisted on shaking hands. "'Good-bye,' shouted Mr. Ferenby as the car turned the corner and started up the drive. "'Good luck to you, and bad luck to your theories.' "'Same to you, sir,' cried Amory, smiling and waving his hand. Out of the Fire, Out of the Little Room Eight hours from Princeton, Amory sat down by the Jersey roadside and looked at the frost-bitten country. Nature is a rather coarse phenomenon composed largely of flowers that, when closely inspected, appeared moth-eaten, 
and of ants that endlessly traverse blades of grass, was always disillusioning. Nature represented by skies and waters and far horizons was more likable. Frost and the promise of winter thrilled him now, made him think of a wild battle between St. Regis and Groton, ages ago, seven years ago, and of an autumn day in France twelve months before when he had lain in tall grass, his platoon flattened down close around him, waiting to tap the shoulders of a Lewis gunner. He saw the two pictures together with somewhat the same primitive exaltation. Two games he had played, differing in quality of acerbity, linked in a way that differed them from Rosalind, or the subject of labyrinths which were, after all, the business of life. "'I am selfish,' he thought. "'This is not a quality that will change when I see human suffering, or lose my parents, or help others.' This selfishness is not only part of me, it is the most living part. It is by somehow transcending, rather than by avoiding, that selfishness that I can bring poise and balance into my life. There is no virtue of unselfishness that I cannot use. I can make sacrifices, be charitable, give to a friend, endure for a friend, lay down my life for a friend all because these things may be the best possible expression of myself, yet I have not one drop of the milk of human kindness. The problem of evil had solidified for Amory into the problem of sex. He was beginning to identify evil with the strong phallic worship in Brook and the early wells. Inseparably linked with evil was beauty. Beauty, still a constant rising tumult, soft in Eleanor's voice, in an old song at night, rioting deliriously through life like superimposed waterfalls, half rhythm, half darkness. Amory knew that every time he had reached toward it longingly it had leered out at him with the grotesque face of evil. Beauty of great art, beauty of all joy, most of all, the beauty of women. After all, it had too many associations with license and indulgence. Weak things were often beautiful weak things were never good, and in this new loneness of his that had been selected for what greatness he might achieve, beauty must be relative, or, itself a harmony, it would make only a discord. In a sense this gradual renunciation of beauty was the second step after his disillusion had been made complete. He felt that he was leaving behind him his chance of being a certain type of artist. It seemed so much more important to be a certain sort of man. His mind turned a corner suddenly, and he found himself thinking of the Catholic Church. The idea was strong in him that there was a certain intrinsic lack in those to whom orthodox religion was necessary, and religion to Amory meant the Church of Rome. Quite conceivably, it was an empty ritual, but it was seemingly the only assimilative, traditionary bulwark against the decay of morals. Until the great mobs could be educated into a moral sense, someone must cry, Thou shalt not! Yet any acceptance was, for the present, impossible. He wanted time and the absence of ulterior pressure. He wanted to keep the tree without ornaments, realize fully the direction and momentum of this new start. The afternoon waned from the purging good of three o'clock to the golden beauty of four. 
Afterward he walked through the dull ache of a setting sun when even the clouds seemed bleeding, and at twilight he came to a graveyard. There was a dusky, dreamy smell of flowers, and the ghost of a new moon in the sky and shadows everywhere. On an impulse he considered trying to open the door of a rusty iron vault built into the side of a hill, a vault washed clean and covered with late-blooming, weeping, watery-blue flowers that might have grown from dead eyes, sticky to the touch with a sickening odour. Amory wanted to feel William Dayfield, 1864. He wondered that graves ever made people consider life in vain. Somehow he could find nothing hopeless in having lived. All the broken columns and clasped hands and doves and angels meant romances. He fancied that in a hundred years he would like having young people speculate as to whether his eyes were brown or blue, and he hoped quite passionately that his grave would have about it an air of many, many years ago. It seemed strange that out of a row of Union soldiers two or three made him think of dead loves and dead lovers, when they were exactly like the rest, even to the yellowish moss. Long after midnight the towers and spires of Princeton were visible, with here and there a late-burning light, and suddenly out of the clear darkness the sound of bells. As an endless dream it went on, the spirit of the past brooding over a new generation, the chosen youth from the muddled, unchastened world, still fed romantically on the mistakes and half-forgotten dreams of dead statesmen and poets. Here was a new generation, shouting the old cries, learning the old creeds, through a reverie of long days and nights, destined finally to go out into that dirty grey turmoil to follow love and pride, a new generation dedicated more than the last to the fear of poverty and the worship of success, grown up to find all gods dead, all wars fought, all faiths in man shaken. Amory, sorry for them, was still not sorry for himself. Art, politics, religion, whatever his medium should be, he knew he was safe now, free from all hysteria. He could accept what was acceptable, roam, grow, rebel, sleep deep through many nights. There was no God in his heart, he knew. His ideas were still in riot. There was ever the pain of memory, the regret for his lost youth. Yet the waters of disillusion had left a deposit on his soul, responsibility and a love of life, the faint stirrings of old ambitions and unrealized dreams. But, oh, Rosalind, Rosalind! It's all a poor substitute at best, he said sadly and he could not tell why the struggle was worth while, why he had determined to use to the utmost himself and his heritage from the personalities he had passed. He stretched out his arms to the crystalline, radiant sky. "'I know myself!' he cried. "'But that is all!' End of chapter and of book Thank you for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.